This podcast today is brought to you by women that make me feel less manly. (laughs) 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 And Port City Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Portland, New Hampshire. (laughs) Located at 8 Greenleaf Woods Drive. You can find us on the web at portcitybjj.com. All the info you need is up there. Schedule's up to date. We have kids, fundamentals, advanced classes, striking class on Friday. Um, we're located inside the Seco Sp- Sports Club. Uh, we have all the amenities, pool, sauna, weight room, cardio machines, Locker like, rooms. It's a huge, like, indoor, like, astroturf area. Astroturf there. area. Got everything you need. So uh, hit us up on the web. Come in and check us out. You won't regret it, I promise. Also, buy Everproven CrossFit. Uh, we're in the mill at 51 Washington Street, Dover, New Hampshire. Our phone number, you can reach us at 603-740-0822 if you're interested. Uh, someone may or may not answer the phone. Depends on what time of day it is. Uh, you can also reach us, uh, check out our website. It's www.evrprvn.com or you can direct email uh, the box manager at stone at evrprvn.com. Um, full-on CrossFit gym. Um, we have beginner intros. Uh, we have on-ramps as well as competitive program. Um, kids, light classes, everything, uh, whatever, uh, whatever your ability level is, um, we've got it. So without further ado, here's the podcast. All right, we're back at it, uh, number five, with uh, Sharp Iron Society. Um, hello, everybody. <laughs> hello, Derek. What's up, buddy? What's been happening? Uh, not much. Nothing much? Nothing much in the week, week other than uh, instructing a bunch of people from our CrossFit gym yeah, uh, in some BJJ yesterday. Some some worlds collided, <laughs> literally. <laughs> a bunch of people from Ever Proven CrossFit came and did some jiu-jitsu yesterday. It was awesome. I, I actually got to stand back a little bit and watch you as an instructor. You've probably seen me plenty of times as an instructor, so it's it's definitely an inter- interesting aspect to actually see you teaching for once. Yeah, I feel like it's a uh, it's a little bit more it's a different dynamic, and I think it it kind of shocked some of the, the, the normal <laughs> shocking as in like hey right. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's less. Um, I don't know. How to put this nicely, but there's there's less like coddling, like you know, because you're essentially there to learn how to beat someone up. Yeah, so, yeah, so no, you, you guys, you guys, you pretty much just like we're rolling with people. It's just like, like, okay, keep, let's keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. We got a little bit of time, let's do this. Right. Oh, and there's no, the best way to put it is there's no fucking around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was clear and evident. Right. Just stop talking and pay attention so we can learn to do this. Uh, I think it's also uh, an aspect of you want to be able to do this under stress. At a, at a high rate of speed so you need to know those little fine motor details um definitely some stress aspect in lifting weights 
but you can scale it down a lot to, you know, you could just do a PVC pipe or a barbell or, you know, do the movements really slow and yeah. things like that. But in you can't scale down a right, human body. Right. And, and <laughs> essentially in jujitsu, uh, when you get down to it's, it's root, it's a life and death situation. So you need to be able to, you know, cycle those things, you know, really fast. I feel like, uh, you know, it's kind of the same probably with, you know, teaching firearms or, you know, any, any of that tactical stuff is the same. You know, you can't just got to learn these details so that there, you can do them without a very having, small margin of error. That was one of the things I talked about those guys afterwards too. They were like, Oh, well, you know, I got tired really fast and things like that. Well, you're also all the, and that's the funny thing is all those guys are, and girls are in really good shape. Never seen them so out of breath in my entire life. <laughs> it was hilarious. The huffing and puffing and red faced. And they all know like where they are strong. You know what I mean? What position to put their body in to be strong. And then the, I was like, all you got to do is think about doing that and then putting someone else in a position where they're not strong. It's really not that hard. You know, and it's not, you know, you're not the goal isn't to win, it's to survive. And, uh, I mean, they, their minds were blown, but you could see them when they were rolling because it was under stress, flipping through that mental roll decks as fast as they could to think about how to do it. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, just relax. As soon as you relax, it becomes a lot easier. And a couple of the guys did, but it was definitely funny to see them. Like, as soon as I was like, all right, let's roll. And we like slap hands and shake hands and ready to go. And then I could just see them start to like, <laughs> I'm like, all right, got you, bitch. I mean, these are, these are, these are. Guys and gals that have, like have done some fierce, fierce uh, wads and and, right. and some stuff. I mean, Elliot and uh, oh, Joey. Ty- Tyrannosaurus, yeah. Elliot Field and Joey, <laughs> Joey, Joey, getting all red faced and it was it was awesome. Yeah, Joey is probably the most one of the most fit people I've ever seen. Joey Fashion, any trains that ever proven. Um, I'm almost positive he'll he'll be a regionals athlete in the near future works really hard probably one of the he's got muscles where i've never even known there were muscles on the human body before (laughs) and he was he was huffing and puffing it was great all right so um i mean it was awesome to watch that stuff being i got to be a spectator and made me want to do it even more so um moving along uh today our guest is uh candace creasy um say hi how's it going <laughs> <laughs> do you want to give us our your uh your full title my full title yes your full title uh in regards to in regards to what you do professionally oh i'm in the united states marine corps okay uh captain of the marine corps uh currently teaching up at sear school awesome awesome <laughs> So uh, now that you're in my Candace, uh, we're just going to go full on into uh, get, getting to know Candace a little bit. Um, so where were you originally born? Oh, wow. We're going way back. We're going way back here. But it's evident when we were driving around here, like, oh, what town are we in? What town are we in? <laughs> Not New Hampshire. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, born in the great state of Texas. I did not know you were Texan. Yeah. Well, Te- Texan. Not, te- <laughs> not Texan. <laughs> Mush mouth. <laughs> Made in a factory somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, we only were there for about three weeks. My father was in the Air Force. Okay. Uh, so he was stationed out there. And then after I popped out, uh, we were there for three weeks before we moved on to Korea. That sounds, well, except for the Korea part, that sounds a lot like me, where I was like born outside of Paul's boat, or bo- <laughs> born outside of Seattle. And it was like, oh, hey, you're out. Let's move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was pretty sweet. Um, I've been there 
a couple times. There's really not a whole lot going on anymore. But so from Texas to uh, Korea, my mother's half Korean. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm half Korean. My mother's full fledged Korean from uh, South Korea, and so we got to see some of her stopping grounds. And that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> have you been? Have you been been to Korea since? Uh, I was out there in 2000, <clears throat> like 2010 or so. Uh, I hadn't seen my relatives outside the family since I was a baby. And so about, you know, 20 plus odd years. So I was out there on a detachment with the Marine Corps. Okay. Uh, we we're stationed over at Osan Air Force Base. And so I got to really see them for the first time. And Koreans are fun. Uh, <laughs> and like, I, I can't speak any Korean. Right. Like zero. Uh, I speak like four or five words, usually not the ones you want to say in public. <laughs> and so seeing them, it was, uh, my mom was like the translator the entire time. And because they hadn't seen me in 20, you know, 25, 28 years, they kept trying to give me money. Because in the Asian culture, it's like we missed your birthday for <laughs> 25 years. You owe me a million dollars. So like, every time I turned around, is like they're giving me gifts or they're giving me money. And you know, of course, I have no idea what to do. I'm like, um, I yeah, can't you, take this. And my cousin, who spoke some English, he's like, no, they want to give this to you because you've been you're gone. They haven't seen you in so long. And so just, you know, but grudgingly, like, take it. Embarrassingly so. Yeah, like, it would be an insult you. if you didn't, right? Exactly. So it's a very different. Asian culture is very different than Western culture. And right. So, uh, did you go to school in Korea or? No, we were only there for a little bit, uh, and then we moved from there to Alaska. Alaska. So really, the predominance of my childhood is Alaska and Colorado. Man, <laughs> <laughs> what's 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 Alaska like as a kid? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, all those things you don't care about as an adult, like being cold right. or not getting any sleep. Gone. It was phenomenal. I mean, right. All you do is get in your big old puff suit and then go around the the snow, you know, and you don't care it's 20 below zero. You know, you don't care there's no daylight. You know, you just go out and play all day long, building tunnels, king of the mountain. It's awesome. That sounds awesome. You must have been able to see Northern Lights all the time. I did, yeah. uh, It's kind of a memory from my childhood, not one that sticks out uh, where I can remember a specific time that I saw it. Uh, but it's definitely something that kind of follows me. And uh, I was able to see them recently in Iceland. And it was ridiculous. I mean, at just green streaks across the sky. I saw from the airplane as well on the way out to Iceland. And there's, you know, there's floating, you know, there are the rays from the sun coming in um, and polarizing. If I'm correct, I could be completely wrong on that. All <laughs> I know is they're really pretty. And yeah. they just stay forever. And it's, I mean, it, 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 it the only time I've ever seen is is pictures, and it just looks so alien. Yeah. I mean, it looks like we're on like like some sci-fi movie, like on Mars or something, and there's something floating up in the air. But it's just it just it, the the idea of it sounds so alien. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, we want to go and watch these like green streaks across the sky, and yeah, just, it's it's like it's alive, and that's the coolest thing. You know, it's it's completely unreal. Right, and they just continue, and they go from being really bright to come come back, and then. Different colors, too, so uh, there's like a KP scale when it comes to Northern Lights, and that kind of dictates how far south you'll see them as well. Right. You know, down south in Antarctica, they have their own version as well. Um, so on both poles, there's different yeah. huh. lights. Anyways, if it's higher on the KP scale, you'll actually see other colors. So you'll see oranges and reds and not just green, and they'll dance. And so a low KP, they're kind of like waves right. in the sky. And then when it gets a higher level activity, it becomes like these dancing lights that like shoot up vertically and like dance around in different colors. And it's pretty, 
it's pretty phenomenal. That's awesome. I mean, you can just go into it and be like, you know, this is why why probably like Norsemen came up with ideas of um, like gods traveling on this like mm. like whatever rainbow bridge. I can't remember what it is. <laughs> right. I'm trying to dig up information I learned from watching Thor. <laughs> It's like, yeah. Vikings. Yeah, it was in a movie, so it's real. Right. Every um, time. Right. That uh, no, that's. I mean, that's awesome. Um, uh, that's definitely one of those things that's on my bucket list is mm-hmm. seeing seeing the Northern Lights. You just got to be cold as hell when you do it. So far, we've established that you've been to Texas, Korea, <laughs> Alaska, Colorado, Iceland. Where else in the world? Have Maybe you been? it's easier to say where have you not been. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, if you count Iceland as part of Europe, then right. I've been to Europe, but I've never voyaged around Europe. I've never been to like Spain or Italy or anything. So I haven't been there. Uh, I haven't been to Antarctica and I haven't been to the actual country of Australia. I've been to New Zealand a few times, <laughs> but not Australia. Right, right next door. <laughs> so yeah, my goal is I want to hit all, you know, the continents, right. you know, ideally do climb either the sevens. Uh, the Seven Summits, which right. is the highest mountain in each continent, right. or just be there. So Europe's on my list sometime soon. Right. And then Antarctica is a little bit more expensive. Right. Uh, <laughs> I might have to wait. <laughs> so this brings up the fact that you uh, are not only um, uh, a Marine and a SEER school instructor, but you've also done some amazing accomplishments, um, which is pretty much why you're on this podcast uh, to, to begin with, because you've done some amazing things. It's just like the, the, the astounds me. It's just you, you've lived this really cool life. And one of them is climbing uh, multiple mountains around the world. Um, what ones have you uh, have you ascended? Uh, so it started out with Kilimanjaro. Okay. Yep, in Tanzania, and that was that was a pretty neat one. Um, Kilimanjaro is obviously the tallest mountain in Africa, mm-hmm. and then uh, that one's very doable by any type of person, and that's very important to note. Is people think that these mountains are beyond their scope, right? And I think generally people think they're not capable of as much as they really are, right? Uh, and Kilimanjaro, you see people up there who are like seventy-five. You know, okay. hiking, and then you talk to like a twenty-three-year-old who says, "Oh, I can never do that." So Kilimanjaro—it's pretty phenomenal. It's a big mountain. I mean, just not pointy. Uh, it has a huge, a huge like summit ridge, if you will. Uh, that's actually two summits on Kilimanjaro. Okay. A uh, one taller than the other, um, and uh, you basically there's different. Is it like a, a shallow grade? Is, is it, um, to get up to the mountain or? No, uh, it's just it's non-technical. Okay. So in that respect, the it used to be more glaciated than it is now. Uh, the glaciers have actually receded quite a bit on Kilimanjaro, and some really predominant alpine climbers, uh, like Sarah Hunnikin, uh, she does a lot of ice climbing and mixed climbing, and she's they've gone up there and taken pictures of basically climbing on these little remnants of glacier that exist on Kilimanjaro anymore, and it's kind of sad. Uh, you really don't hit the snow or any glaciated surface until your last day when you're your summit day right the rest of it's just different levels of uh ecosystem and environment basically rain most of the time right and dirt and rock right and uh, you hike for anywhere depending on what route you choose and how expeditiously you choose to climb the mountain you hike uh, you know 12 hours a day eight to 12 hours a day so, uh, sorry uh, how many days did you say it, it took to get up i think it's i think we did like four four up and then two down 
Okay. Mm-hmm. But you can do it quicker than that, or you can do it longer. Most of the time, the extended trips are for people who need to acclimate. So the number one thing that's going to get you on a mountain, if you, and anyone really, uh, they still haven't nailed it down what causes this, uh, is altitude sickness. Right. Yeah, so AMS, altitude mountain sickness, um, that's what will keep people from continuing on their trek. And it really can hit anyone. Mm-hmm. which is the weird thing. You could be the most fit athlete or the most experienced mountaineer and still get AMS. Or you could be completely... Obviously, your chances of getting it, if you're fit, you know, a little lower than probably someone who doesn't exercise because right. at yeah. that point, you're probably just hyperventilating and you don't know why. <laughs> right. So I have, a, I have a very offhand question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, do you know who Wim Hof is? Oh, man, he just read my mind. <laughs> no, the whole time, I'm, I'm like... I don't know if I'm less impressed with him now. Do you know who, uh, do you I don't. Know? No, do, I don't. Do you, uh, so Wim Hof is uh, the flying ice man. He's uh, Dutch, right? He's Dutch, I think, Dutch. but he's got this breathing method he calls the Wim Hof method. And uh, like it's like you take a big, deep breath in, and then uh, you only let it halfway out, and then take another deep breath, and you do it for like 30 seconds or a minute or whatever, and you oxygenate your blood. But he climbed... Mount Everest, Kilimanjaro, and something else in shorts and boots, and nothing else. No. Wow! Yeah, he, and he's 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 like so. You're he's, saying he's crazy, right? Well, then well, <laughs> he is a little so bit crazy. Then he swam. Eccentric. So he wanted the world record of swimming free dive, like free swimming underneath the ice in the Arctic or Greenland it, or it something was like, like that. Fifty yards. He was supposed meters. to go fifty yards, but he went longer because his retinas froze and he went blind. <laughs> so they had to bring him back. Like so. It was like this big thing that he climbed Kilimanjaro. Now I'm like, it's fucking raining and dirt. Like, <laughs> well, it, it's, it, it, it's more it's more impressive that he's taking um, he's taking elderly. I mean, like one straight up elderly, like 80, 80 year old men, teaching them this breathing technique. Yeah. Um, and in a very very short span of time, I mean, like I know you you probably got ready for this like a long uh, for for a while. No, no, you shaking your no, head. I have a uh, big problem with. <laughs> training for things (laughs) (laughs) um we'll get back to that (laughs) so he uh so he's preparing these people by by doing his 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 uh breathing technique and um i mean not only older people but he's also um taking people that are uh that have autoimmune Hmm. um deficient uh deficiencies or diseases um and he's people that are like post-cancer and all kind, all kinds of people, sick, healthy, and getting them to send Kilimanjaro in pretty much nothing, boots and shorts. And I mean, he's done this uh, several times with people, and he it's his breathing technique and 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 flushing his system with oxygen and in like core heat and and he'll sit in a um I don't know. Like, see if you can bring it up. Um, how long he sat in like this giant tub of ice with like one arm out because they were testing mm-hmm. testing stuff on him. Uh, he just sat in a tub of ice for for hours. Yeah, you know, I mean, because it he can raise like, his core temperature so well. Exactly, it just sounds like a meditative property. I I mean, yeah, this is the kind of stuff like Shaolin monks exactly. have been practicing that's, for years, and he's just making it. I think probably right. making it more accessible. Well, and I think the the thing that's the the astonishing thing with him is that the science is there to like monitor it and it's actually doing it instead of yep. like whatever, like forget he was in that tub of ice. And I guess cause your kidneys are closest to the surface. They start to cool down and mm-hmm. fail sooner. So he could actively use his mind to 
move his body heat to his kidneys to warm his kidneys back up so they wouldn't yeah. fail. It's the weirdest stuff. It's he, he's crazy. doing. He's he really is doing some amazing things. And even uh, Dr. Kelly Starrett, who who you, you're familiar with, mm-hmm. said that his work, his his bringing this to light, is some of the most important work in the 20th century. Um, and this is Kelly Starrett. I find it funny though because it's been around for. Centuries. It's been stretching, and especially in Eastern, maybe in the Western, yeah, in the Western world, they're like, "Oh my God, we've never seen this before. This is amazing." But in the Eastern culture, that type of mind, that meditative state, the controlling your mind and using your mind, and it's the biggest properties you can besides the ten percent they state we can use, is very you know common. It's everything's more spiritual in Eastern culture and Eastern medicine to where everything's coming internally. Where in Western medicine, and maybe that's shifting, everything's externally and. I guess it's probably predominantly, I would assume, the Western side who's like, this is the coolest thing ever. Right. And not and the Eastern cats are probably like, <laughs> we've been doing this forever. <laughs> we got 2,000 years on you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that brings up an interesting point. So um, you've done a lot in your life and you, you know, you're, mo- you're an adventurer um, and you've accomplished a lot of things. Do you think that a lot of that has to do with that? Asian influence in your life? Do you think that that was a, a factor in you know, kind of self-belief and being spiritual and things like that? <clears throat> you know, I mean, to a point, I mean, my mother, when she was you know, in her 20s, young, uh, early 20s, came over to America, left her family, she's the youngest child, and just came out here to marry my dad. Right. You know, got on a plane all by her little self right. and went to a whole new world where she didn't speak very much English. Right. So I think my mother's very, has much, she's very tenacious. I mean, right. she has, I think that's where I get some of the mentality right. of that. Um, but I think more so it's just a realization at different points in my life how short life is. Right. And we don't really know how much time we have. Right. And so to do things while we're young and we are capable and able, um, before we don't have the opportunity to. Right. You know, many times, and I, think, I just feel like a clock, a clock was ticking right. at certain points in my life. I'm like, I need to do stuff. I need to live life. Right. And, you know, not just sit around right. because, you know, our society is so built on this idea of, oh, work until you're 65, save all your little nuts like a squirrel, you right. know, and then when you're 65, go buy an RV and go voyage around the world once the kids are out of the house right. and then live your life. Right. And well, by the time you're 65, especially nowadays, even though we have a longer longevity, uh, so that's kind of redundant, but greater longevity of life, you're not as capable. More people are dying from cancer right. at a younger age, et cetera. And <coughs> who knows if you're going to make it there. Right. You're scratching way more off your bucket list by the time you're <laughs> 85 than you are in your 20s. Yeah, I right. mean, you're capable. Your body's able to move. Right. Your mind is quick. Why are, you, why are we waiting so long to live a life because someone tells us the right thing to do is work a 9-to-5 job until you're 65? Right. You know? Right. That's kind of been a theme in this podcast, too. We've talked about a lot of people who have influenced me and us and things like that. Kind of, you don't have to live that, you know, that stereotypical lifestyle mm-hmm. that everyone's telling you to live, which is pretty awesome. And it's funny, I was thinking about that on the way over here, actually, in the car, because we talking about podcasts and, you know, kind of not listening to podcasts very often, things like that. I feel like every, all the podcasts I listen to, they're older gentlemen. You know what I mean? They're like in their like late 40s, early 50s, and things like that. I'm like, how long, much longer are these people going to be able to podcast, you know, and like how like, you know, what, what happens when those gems of people who have lived that life 
and and experience those things and it seems to be all these people like you know joe rogan who was you know has lived this crazy life up until now and then i listened to um this guy daniele bellelli who's a um italian uh professor at a college in california and he like same thing like wrote written all these books traveled all over the world and whatever like what happens when that guy is like can't do it anymore someone's got to kind of move in and and take their place and things like that and i just find it interesting that that clock is always ticking always mm-hmm. ticking you better go out there and you know do what you want to do and get stuff done before it's too late mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. it's funny my dad has which is weird because my dad's kind of a workaholic like he he'll work seven days a week feel anybody's he's like what am i going to do when i retire just be tired again. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I guess that's a good point. That's funny. Uh, it, 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 I think I don't remember who we were talking to about this, but um, I remember saying somebody saying something about like uh, there is a very distinct New England uh, <laughs> way of thinking of like like school and then go right into college and then go in right into work and it's just like you don't stop working and right. you never you leave New England and you never leave New England right. <laughs> Right, yeah. This definitely seems to be a theme in this area. We're we're on the very blue life. collar. It's very blue collar. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the biggest difference between I think East Coast and West Coast. And this right. might be dangerous territory I'm getting into, but very much on the West Coast. Like when I lived in San Diego, you meet someone and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm from Ohio, or I'm from Canada, or I'm from right. Texas, or Colorado." Everyone's from somewhere different. Right. Out here. You go out with people that you met, and they're like, oh, yeah, I've lived here since I was, you know, born. And this is my best friend, Bob. I've known Bob since, you know, two months old, and we've hung out ever since. And this is Jane. We've been friends since kindergarten. Right. Like, people generally don't leave. Right. They're very yeah. much ingrained to staying in New England. And they might leave for a couple of years, but then they come back. Right. Or they leave for, um, you know, two weeks, and they come back. Um, <laughs> but that's what it seems like in the West Coast. It seems very much more malleable like people leave and they stay gone and then right. maybe they'll come back if they love their town to retire and or have kids and etc right. but yeah no nobody moves to new england on on, on a whim right I mean, people move people move more often to san diego on a whim <laughs> right <laughs> Although I'm, I, I think half my high school moved to san diego after we graduated <laughs> right right it's definitely uh, i went to san diego two years ago now and i was like like the weirdest shit ever <laughs> like it was just like there's no but i think there are definitely some uh some downfalls in new england but i think like there's that maybe not in in the living life aspect but there's a more sense of urgency you know what i mean like oh we got to get this done right now you know what i mean like absolutely so I, I think that was one thing that really shocks me when i go someplace else everyone's like yeah like or like i deal with so many brazilians you know what i mean <laughs> and like we literally make fun of them because everything's on Brazilian time. There's like no schedule whatsoever. Like we'll show up when we show up and we'll get it done when we get it done and we'll leave when we want. And I'm like, all right, I guess that's what we're doing. (laughs) And like in New England, it's like, I'll be there at this time. We're going to get it done in this amount of time. And then we're leaving and we're going to go do this instead. Like afterwards, I'm like, it's very scheduled and regimented. I also think like it's almost like the townies of, like the whole East Coast because everyone came first, you know what I mean? And like, they didn't move on. I don't know. Exactly. They didn't get on the trail right, <laughs> and right, towards the West right. Coast. So it's that ingrained, like... Don't leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stay in the fort. Don't leave the walls. Right, right, exactly. It's dangerous out there. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So you uh, you did Kilimanjaro. Yep. Um, you, you also did Denali? I did. I was uh, at Denali last 
what year is it? 2016. Last year, mm-hmm. uh, I was able to get on with a trip there, a guided trip. Uh, Denali is a whole different animal. Uh, it's generally rated, among all the seven summits, it's rated one most difficult <clears throat> in a way different way than Everest. So Denali, a lot of the time, the weather is really what kills you on Denali. It's unpredictable. It can be very harsh. Uh, the entire thing is crevassed like Everest is, so it's glaciated, um, like all the, most of the other seven summits. Um, and so, and it's a long trek. So whereas Kilimanjaro was six, seven days or whatever, Denali is 21 easy, 21, 24. And they, all you, and you're carrying everything. So Kilimanjaro, you cannot climb Kilimanjaro without a guide company. You have to go through a guide company. It helps the Tanzanian, you know, tourists and help fund people in Tanzania. As far as Denali goes, you can do it by yourself. Um, that's fine. People do it solo. People do it in teams or groups, or you get a guide. Kilimanjaro with a guide company, they carry all your crap if you let them. <laughs> like they have a certain amount uh, their porters can carry because, as far as the welfare of the porters, they can't be hauling up 150 pounds. Right. Um, but they will carry most of your crap, put up your tent for you if you go through a guide company. Um, most guide like Everest is the same way. They're there to take care of you. Right. Denali, you're carrying all your own stuff. Uh, you're setting up your tent with other people in your group. Right. You're if you're not with a guided trip, you're melting your water, melting your snow for water. You're doing all this stuff. You're carrying anywhere like 100, 150 pounds of gear. You have a big pack loaded to the brim, and then you're also hauling a sled behind you with another pack with more gear in it because you have to survive for 21 days and with all the food that you're going to be eating, all the fuel you're going to be using. Now everything. is this? Is this- 150 pounds on your back and then more weight on the sled or is it all just it depends. Out? kind of evened out a bit because you have all your own gear you carry that you bring so you know your your sleeping bag all that crap now you're getting all the f- uh, food for all the people on your trip you're you're carrying the tents uh, which have to be pretty hardy tents because the weather conditions uh, things like that you're carrying all the fuel fuel is liquid it's heavy right. um, and you're carrying all that and you always want to bring extra right uh, and so so you're basically, you're just moving. I mean, you're hauling with all this, all this gear. And the first day you have the most gear ever. <laughs> and uh, you're using snowshoes right. at the bottom. And then snowshoes or skis. So two ways to do it. Snowshoes and then crampons right. as you get higher. Or you can do skis to crampons. Uh, which if I did it again, I'd rather do skis. Because really? it's just, yeah, it's just a lot more. Um, so snowshoes, you hike up, right. drop a cache, you know, bury it in. And then you have to walk back down. Right. Skis, you ski up, drop the cash, and then you get a ski downhill. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's much quicker um, right. and probably a lot more fun right. than snowshoeing back down. Right. Uh, so Denali is one of those things where, again, I think anyone can do it. I mean, that's my overall general opinion. Anyone can do anything. It's just a matter of time and effort. Right. Um, but it's, uh, it's one of those that the weather window really keeps people from climbing and people end up doing stupid stuff because they really want to summit. Kilimanjaro, you can make some mistakes. Right. Denali, you can't. If Denali, you get tired, you get hypoxic, you start acting funny, or you keep going when your fingers and toes are cold, you're going to get frostbite right. or you're going to make a mistake and slip down the side of the mountain and die um, or hurt someone or fall down a crevasse. Right. Uh, many, many stories of people... You know, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time sometimes. I mean, the mountain's out to ki- not out to kill you, but you're in its domain. Right. And it's going to keep functioning the way it functions, and you just might get caught up in it. Right. Um, stories about uh, Japanese climbers who died on, uh, near 
one of the hills and one of the cams basically an avalanche came through and knocked them into a crevasse and of the three of them i believe one of them survived got himself out of the crevasse and was just walking down the mountain and people found him and then stories of uh people being tired taking a rest and <laughs> having their sled kind of start sliding down the mountain right. and going after it and jumping on it and therefore sledding down the mountain. Sledding, <laughs> yeah sledding down the mountain dying right. um so, or this year, they found a climber up around 17,000 feet. He was a solo climber, uh, experienced guy from South America. Just dead. I mean, dead. I didn't have a 10 out or ni- anything. Just like he laid down in the snow and just died. Um, so it's a little more real in that aspect that you got to make decisions of whether you can go on or whether you need to turn around. Safety is always a big concern because you get tired, and when you get really, really tired, and your brain's deprived of oxygen, you start making you act like you're drunk. Right. Uh, and so we actually didn't get a summit, so we got up there, and we got up at high camp for about, I think, three nights. It's all kind of a blur. <laughs> you're like three to a tent, right. so there's no room to move, right. and you know, the condensation from your breath freezes on the the ceiling of the tent, and every time you do move and roll the condensation falls on your face. So basically it's snowing in your tent. Right. And you can't really sleep because you don't have enough oxygen. Uh, and it's just like claustrophobia. It's a nightmare. So then uh, we finally woke up and looked outside and it's like beautiful blue sky weather. Bluebird all the way. And so we thought maybe we're going. I need to do something at that point. Like I either need to go on or I need to turn around because I can't stand being up here any longer. Right. And unfortunately we couldn't go on even though you could see the summit because there's a huge storm coming in. And if we did try to hit the summit that day, we'd get stuck at 17-2 camp, and we don't have the supplies for that. Oh. So it was a matter, and we get stuck for several days. Um, and so it was one of those things where it's like you make the hard decision. You know, you paid so much money to go do this. You put in 21 days of effort right. to get up there, and now you're turning around, and you could see the summit. And it's just like, oh, my God. But the next day, people went up, and some guy got frostbite on all his fingers and how to get help down the mountain right. by the rangers because he couldn't he had no functionality in his hands and he probably will lose all those fingers so it's kind of is the summit worth it it's a fine line uh between safety and yeah right. death you know. right. <laughs> or right. Or some, right. some kind of catastrophic like bodily <laughs> injury right um now when uh money brings up the fact that you've not only done these things but you've also had charities involved um with kilimanjaro it was um charity water and uh, the tanzanian education fund mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh we'll raise i think i don't remember now, like twenty five hundred dollars total uh separated between those two and then charity water i was able to look at the quality the quality of water in tanzania is atrocious it's just atrocious. Like, they don't have... I think piping only goes to three of their major cities. And due to the poverty level, basically the people will tap into that piping on their own to get clean water. So therefore the piping doesn't work. Right. And they don't turn on that piping. Only during certain hours is the water flowing. So most of the most the rural population in Tanzania, uh, like the really rural, ends up going to get water in you know, jerry cans. Right. And sometimes that water source is the same water source their cattle is drinking out of. Right. So they're drinking bad water. On top of that, where they're using their facilities uh, is in the same location as where their water is. So a lot of disease. So charity water goes in there, and there's several different ways to make clean water. Uh, and then the Tanzania Education Fund was a school uh, in Tanzania, and I was able to go there and see their, 
where they're at, the kind of the facilities and talk to their owner, the guy who started it and everything. So it's pretty cool. Uh, kind of eye opening again, always is when you travel, right. how different the world is. And, uh, and Af- from everything I have heard and understand, Africa is just, there's, it's, it's not, it's not good over there. It matters where you are. It's a huge country. You know, it's, it's, I forget when you put a map up, you take Africa and put it over the United States. I mean, it's a humongous country. Right. And so there's going to be areas of it that are, you know, good to go. Other areas, even within a country itself, Tanzania. I mean, and also I think sometimes the culture's different. Right. So what we see as not so great might be absolutely just fine. Right. You know, I mean, we have a standard, our American standard of something. Right. And for them, they're happy with what they got. Right. You know, they're not trying to be this American standard. Um, and so I haven't been to other parts of Africa, so I can't speak to those. In Tanzania, people seemed happy. I mean, there was a lot of poverty. Uh, They're having trouble with keeping teachers or computers in the school because the teachers would open them up and take out the components and sell them for money. Right. But because they want to feed their families. Right. And so it's this weird disparity of what you'll do when, you know, you need to feed your family. Right. Yeah. And then uh, Denali, you did another, um, I another did. charity? I did. I did the uh, Looking Out Foundation. Uh, they have a subunit they fund called the uh, Fight the Fear program. And it's through Brandy Carlisle. She's a musician. Uh, and they were so nice to let me do this and raise money for them. And Everproven did a competition to help raise money for that as well. And that was absolutely phenomenal and very generous of them. Uh, and basically, the Fight the Fear campaign was started uh, out of Seattle. Uh, basically a married couple, uh, a guy broke into their home and proceeded to rape both of them uh, and basically brought up a knife to kill one, uh, missed, uh, got the other one, they were able to get out, and one of them was able to find help, the other one didn't make it, and she uh, passed away um, before they could get to her. And so the Fight the Fear campaign was put in place to basically teach resources to women and teachers and children, number one, how to fight back. So basic self, self-defense techniques, as well as other things like de-escalation, right. uh, things to keep you out of that situation in the first place, and kind of bring some awareness to stuff like that, because it happens. Right. And um, it's, it's gone really well. It's been following her around on her tours and setting up workshops uh, for women. And it's just that empowerment. You know, Women right. oftentimes don't feel very empowered. They don't know what they're capable of. They don't, you know, there's a lot of fear out there sometimes. And, but women are pretty badass and they're pretty damn strong. And I think it, it's like things like CrossFit or jujitsu, sometimes the military, whatever it may be. Generally the men, the man's world, I right. guess is how it's viewed sometimes that, I don't know, once they can see how strong they are, it's kind of crazy to watch them progress and how the confidence that comes out and a lot of uh, dismantling the things they've heard from a, being a little girl of how you're not strong enough. You can't do push-ups. You can't do pull-ups. You know, right. you can't defend yourself. The man's here to defend you. Right. And that chivalrous stuff is great. Uh, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but at the same time, women are very capable too. Right. Um, so yeah, so the Fight the Fear, uh, Foundation, uh, Fight the Fear campaign was phenomenal. Uh, and so it was really great. I got to meet with Brandy and her wife is the one who runs her charity uh, organization. And they're it's a great, great organization. It's really good ideas so it was, I think we raised over six thousand nice. dollars wow that's awesome for them. Mm-hmm. yeah it was really great that's great that's incredible yeah that's funny uh we were just talking about this before uh we started the podcast about how 
I did that. Uh, I guess it was a little seminar or whatever for the Ever Proven crew yesterday doing jiu-jitsu. And at the end of it, all the guys lined up and they wanted to roll and wrestle and whatever. And I couldn't get one girl to do jiu-jitsu, like actually do live rolling. And I'm like, you guys don't understand. Like this stuff was made for you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like even if you don't think you're physically capable, there's things that that, that you're – body is made up of you know skinny little wrists you know what i mean like like skinny little wrists were made for choking people you know what i mean like you get big fat wrists and you can't get around someone's neck you know what i mean like a skinny little wrist is like they're like when i ever i see like a little girl i'm like you're gonna be awesome at jujitsu you know what i mean it's really hard to hold someone small and squirm you down you know so and women are generally more flexible right they have a lot more they don't they don't rely on their strength right. per se, so they right. know they have to use other things. Technique, exactly. Trump's Same thing all. with rock climbing. Right. I mean, women right. use their legs. Guys generally try to use all their upper body strength right. and right. curl themselves. So up. I don't know. When a girl walks into the academy, I'm like, yes, I'm going to make you a killer. You're gonna be, you're be <laughs> destroying, <laughs> destroying guys three times your size in two months. I guarantee it. And they never believe me. And then when it happens, they're like, Oh my god, it worked! I'm like, you're right, it worked. It's awesome. It's amazing. Do you, you do? Do you do self-defense classes at all, or um, have you done some? Yeah, I mean, typically, it's one of those things where people come to the academy, and it depends what they're looking for, you know what I mean? Um, I try to give everybody in the scenario kind of... What's cool about our academy, too, is, is we're not very big. You know, we have, like, 40 adults. So, like, I was telling those guys yesterday, like, I can line everyone up in our academy on the wall, and I can be like, this is what they do good, and this is what they do bad, this is what they're here for. You know, I have a very intimate relationship with all our members. So, if someone is, like... uh our friend that came in who is in the military and uh, like I, I know what he's there for. You know what I mean? So I can be like during class if he's there, I can be like, so this is something you can do to get what you're looking out of it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, but I try to like just make people generally aware of all the possibilities within that specific technique. You know what I mean? So I'm like, oh, today we're doing this particular technique. You know, if it's a sports situation, you need to score points. This is how you score points. If it's a self-defense situation, this is, you know, the scenario. If it's an MMA situation and you're just like you're fighting professionally, this is what it's good for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't typically, you know, we don't do a, a, a self-defense class per se just because I feel like it limits, you know, it, it singles a lot of people out. But if someone's like, hey, you know, I want to get really good at self-defense, you know, I'm really looking at this for self-defense, you know, I might pull them aside and be like, come in, we'll work one-on-one. Or if someone, if, you know, Matt's talked about having me come in and do some some basic self-defense for the people at Everproven, like, I can definitely do that. And there's def- the thing with self-defense is it's um, it's going to be very basic and refined because you're doing that under a high-stress situation. You know what I mean? So you're only going to learn probably maybe 10 techniques, but you're going to get really, really good at those 10 techniques. You know what I mean? And they're not going to be um, very complicated at all. Where in the sport aspect of it, it's always evolving. You know, you do these, like, you're not worried about getting punched in the face or, you know, like whatever the, 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 God forbid, the worst situation is. So you can kind of open the game up and have fun and flow with it, whatever, which typically people end up liking a little more. You know what I mean? You got And you kind of got a, a appease the masses mm-hmm. um but I, I would say that at a blue belt level which is not very high in jujitsu you're gonna be way better off than most everybody in the world anyway you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so i mean that's my original instructor one of the things he always says and he says this to people who are um 
you can kind of see that it happened. Like when you start jujitsu, you you're you're kind of overwhelmed and awestruck and dumbfounded of what's going on, and then you start to learn some techniques. But everyone else is kind of learning at the same rate you are, so you're like, oh, like I'm understanding what's going on, but I don't feel like I'm getting any better. And then someone new comes in, and you always say, you don't know what you know until you fight someone who knows nothing. Because then you're like, oh, wow, like I know so much more than the average person just because you've been there for a year. You know what I mean? Or not even a year. Just a few months in will gain you that much more over you know, the, the normal person. So, I mean, even at a very low sport jujitsu level, it's a very high self-defense jujitsu level, mm-hmm. I feel. You know what I mean? For mm-hmm. self-defense. So um, one thing that came to mind, and I've, I've seen a couple of things, and, and uh, it, it's been, it been in passing on Facebook, social media, um, where I'm kind of bridging the, these two conversations where it's the Fight to Fear campaign and then um, self-defense. I've seen something about uh, a, like a liberal... Um, liberal teaching and saying like, oh, if you're in a rape situation, just soil yourself because that will uh, that will turn off uh, the the aggressor. And <laughs> where are you seeing this? <laughs> I, I I swear I've seen this and like and and of course it's become like this this meme uh, in like the Second Amendment writers uh, and and and, um, and it's like instead of saying like, hey, why don't you learn how to defend yourself? They're saying, oh, don't worry about that. Just soil yourself. And the aggressor, aggressor will be just be, tur- be turned off. And that's how, that's how you want it. And, and I mean, that is... I think maybe, I don't, I don't know what you're referring to, so I don't, can't tell the context of it. Yeah, I don't have my phone on me, so I can um, look it up. <laughs> I'm sure maybe in relation to a level of escalation. So we, we all might assume that you just fight back. Fight back, fight back, fight back. And you can at a certain point, but there comes a point where you can't fight back. So your life is at stake, correct? So they have a knife to your throat. They have a gun to your head, right? So fighting back probably is not the best idea there. Um, I'm not saying... I mean, you can, but there's a point where, what the hell did I do next? Right. And I'm sure, I mean, in context, I mean... Yeah, in in context, that does make sense. So the idea, I'm sure what they're trying to say with that is to make yourself the most disgusting thing so that... The person who wants to do this to you, whether it be you know male or female, raping a male or female, um, doesn't is just like grossed out. But rape is often about power more than anything else. I mean, look at ro- war right. back to the Roman society. I mean, the, the soldiers would rape men not because they're gay, but it's a power thing. Right. It's owning someone, um, and so yes. So I, I volunteer with the organization in the area called Haven. Uh, they do sexual assault services, and they also are there for domestic violence. Right. And so it's, it's kind of amazing to see the statistics <laughs> of what's out there. And uh, it's a hairy subject anyways, because right. there's always, it's probably one of the one fields of law where a lot of it, it's, I think it'd be hard to fight because it's a lot of he said, she said. Right. And if, let's say the, the uh, let's flip it because it's so often like male, female, and statistically, I mean, whatever, but let's flip it where a female uh, does something to a male. Let's say that male is of a lower uh, income level or from a socio-demographic group that is not uh, as white, uh, white collar, right? Mm-hmm. And the female is white collar. Well, it's going to be a lot easier for them to say, oh, I'll, you know, I have a very good job. I'm respectable. I would never do such a thing to this person. And maybe this person um, 
is low income or maybe even has a criminal record, you know, so there's no, it'd be hard. It's he said, she said, so in the end it comes down, oh, it's consensual or something like that. It's a very right. difficult thing. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a weird subject matter in that respect that, um, and of all the crimes out there, I think it's probably the most difficult to defend if you're actually a victim of that crime. Um, so when it comes to things like that, if you fight back, there's some signs, right, that you, try, you, know, you scratch them right. or something like that. So even let's say they do do the worst and, you know, yeah. use that gun or use that knife. You know, there might be DNA, things like that to help out in the future. Um, but to close the loop on that, I'm sorry, I kind of went on a tangent. Sorry. Is, you know, I think it's probably levels of escalation. I don't think anyone's going to tell you, okay, if this person's trying to rape you or do something else to just lay there and, you know, just soil yourself. Um, I think innately we have a response to fight back. I don't think anyone who gets pinned down in that way innately thinks, I'm just going to lay here. Right. Um, but there's a point where, do you want to live? Do you want to see your family again? What do I do now? Right. You know, and uh, it's that escalation of violence and um, choosing life over certain death and what you'll do at that point so yeah yeah i think that might be the worst piece of advice i've ever heard in my entire life to be honest (laughs) with you um i i mean it's a better piece of advice which i think is um it's it's one of those things i think a lot of people don't talk about and it's um even just on daily life it's losses just to be aware of what's going on around you i see like we were just talking about the other day i saw some kid walking down the street the other day it must have been you know eight o'clock at night or whatever black sweatshirt black pants earbuds in hands in his pockets i was like and i see people do that all the time i'm like at night right right and i'm like i've seen this yeah and i'm like i'm like you do not understand like if someone wanted to make someone a victim, you're screaming victim. Like, I want to be victimized. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a 350-pound man or a 110-pound little girl. Like, mm-hmm. just not being aware of your surroundings, head down looking at your phone, things like that. You know, take your earbuds out or put one in and take the other one out. Keep your hands out of your pockets. Mm-hmm. You know, wear bright colored clothing so a passerby might see you. You know what I mean? Like, dress. And I'm not telling you to live in fear, but that's not, that's how you don't live in fear is being aware yeah, of what's just going being around. Aware. Right. Like everything, even a lot of the stuff that's going on today, uh, what we're seeing more, you know, uh, mass shootings, et cetera, right. or terrorist acts, if you will. A lot of it's just being aware. Most people walk around, they got, they get an airplane right? Uh, and they don't look around at who's on the airplane with them right? or they're in a mall or they're in a restaurant. How often do, does your normal individual actually take a look at what's going on? Right. You know, to even have enough awareness to have a spidey sense go off that something is not quite right here. Right. They just don't, right. you know, and it's just how we live and that's fine and right. it's wonderful. Right. And we have that, we have that ability to live comfortably like that in our country and feel safe, you know, right. but at the same time <laughs> you might want to be, you know, on the other end of the spectrum sometimes of just being aware of what's around you. If something doesn't feel right, right. Maybe you shouldn't be there or, right. you know, move on. But if we just keep our head down, earbuds in, hood pulled over our head. Right. Yeah, I, that's uh, one thing I just I don't understand is people, are their heads are in their phones. Uh, not to mention you're at a supermarket. You're in a big public environment and you have <laughs> headphones on and sunglasses in. Right. It's like, what is, like, do you even know what's going on? Like, completely unaware of anybody right. else. It, and I'm mean, like, I know... 
like I always like anytime I'm getting on a plane or or entering like a a big social situation, like I'm looking at I'm looking at all kinds of faces and knowing who's behind me. And it's it even even goes into play. Like I'll even say this during class. Like I'll, I'll talk about it. It's like okay, there's a lot of people in class today. Um, there's a lot of barbells flying around. Right. Know what's around you. Like, and this goes, this not only is taught like inside this gym, but you can apply, you should be able to apply this outside the gym all the time. Right. Know what is around you, know who's behind you. It's just spatial awareness. Right. Well, a lot I, of people I, don't have it. Yeah. And it's even, I mean, you can go a step further than that. Like, I don't know how many times, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, a younger person's thing to do and everything, but like how many people times do you see someone like go out drinking and not bring a coat in the middle of winter? You know what I mean? Like same thing. I'm like, yeah, you know, you want to look great for, you know, whatever reason, but you know, God, especially in like New England, God forbid your car doesn't start. You know what I mean? Or you get, you dropped your key somewhere or something like that. Now you're standing in the bitter fucking cold with no fucking coat. You know what I mean? There's like, a, uh, have you heard a comedian, Eliza Schlesinger? Yeah, 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 yeah. She has a whole skit about women in coats. Right. And how when you're like in your 20s, God forbid you have to bring a coat because it's so heavy. Right. <laughs> you know, you don't want to have it on you. So you'll see these 20 year old girls, you know, oh, it's old, you know, it's a two minute walk and they're walking right. like a mile without a coat and they're like shivering and you right. lose April along the way. You know, she's just gone. Right, <laughs> she right, freezes. Right. And all the 30 year old, you know, women are wearing jackets and just laughing at the 20 year olds right, because right, right. obviously it's, yeah. Right. It's, well, I mean, the thing is, it's not even women. It's guys. I mean, how many guys <laughs> I know that, like, you go out in a polo how, and, right. <laughs> how often do you see those dipshit teenagers walking to school in nothing but basketball shorts and, like, a sweatshirt? Right. A sweatshirt is, like, is good for them on that right, day. Right, right. It's like, oh, yeah, no, it's 15 out, and I'm wearing basketball shorts and a shirt walking a couple miles to oh, it's school. It's like, Joe Rogan's got a bit. He's like... So the difference between California and Boston is that if you break down in your car in the middle of February in California, you're camping. And if you break down in your car in the middle of February, you might freeze to fucking death in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's a totally different beast, which I think it's, it's hilarious. Old guys. Old guys. What about old guys? You were doing the same thing when you were a kid. No, that's what we were just talking about. Maybe they're using the breathing method. Yeah, the Wim Hof breathing method. <laughs> Ice I, bath. I will, I will <laughs> gladly applaud any 15-year-old that knows who Wim Hof is. Right. Well, you, you never know, man. I, that's one. So this is funny, bringing that up. I taught jiu-jitsu to um, a bunch of high school kids. That was like one of their elective classes at uh, St. John's Prep, which is like St. John's Prep is – it. I mean, we just rolled through Phillips Exeter. So it's kind of that same thing. Like you pay like 30 grand a year to go there at high school, whatever. But the one thing that I noticed was like, and this was probably four years ago or so. Um, and the one thing, I, the difference between me being in high school, you can't not bullshit those kids at all. Like you can make something up and they're like, no, I heard that here or whatever. So it's like, I wouldn't surprise me if those kids knew about these things. You know what I mean? Which makes it all like... Well, they have Google. Right. Why, yeah. Why aren't you wearing a goddamn coat if you know about Google? <laughs> the, the, the information is so much more accessible these days. Right. Yeah, man. It's it's crazy the stuff that people just aren't aware of or or, or, or can make themselves aware of really easy, but just don't take Well, it comes time to all to it. aspects, too. So just being aware. How about right. being aware of life? Right. I mean, how many people sit there and actually know they're breathing? I right. mean, yoga, meditation, et cetera, it's really good for that, bringing people back to their center. Right. We're so distracted. 
Right. We're so tired all the time. Right. Oh, don't so, even get me dis- <laughs> on we're distraction. So, right. We're so anxious. Right. And busy, 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 busy. You don't have time to cook a real meal anymore. Right. We don't have time to exercise. We don't have time to have a, be on a phone call. For God's sakes, just pick up the phone and call someone. Right. I'm just going to text you or right. email you. But you're right there. You're just you're sitting next to me. Why are you texting me? Right. <laughs> you know, it's right. just we don't have time. And I think a lot it comes down to people not being aware. They're not aware of the fact that you know they're in a location. They're in a park, you know, they're sitting next to a pond, the sun is shining overhead, they're feeling warm, it's a really great moment. But you're not aware of this because you're Googling, why not to wear a jacket in the middle of winter? Right. (laughs) You know, the overall awareness of being present in the moment, I think, would fix a lot of this. Right, I just, uh, one of our our personal favorites, Brian McKenzie, who does CrossFit Endurance, and he hangs out with Laird Hamilton a lot and everything, and uh, same thing. Wim Hof, disciple, uh, hmm. was talking about how um, they're discovering that a lot of people's anxieties now are from looking down at your phone and you have that like small kink in your neck and you're not getting full airflow to your brain. So you, subconsciously you're panicking because you're getting like this text neck <laughs> like this here. And like if you just picked your head up and was breathing on a normal basis, that you would have way less stress in your life. And they say like that's like what's is like the one benefit to being a smoker <laughs> was because you're consciously taking in deep breaths. You know what I mean? Like this, this is a crazy, that's, like, right. That's a little bit. That's a stretch. That's a stretch. Well, <laughs> but it's like, because you're, you're actively thinking about breathing. It's not got nothing to do with like all the chemicals you're bringing, but it's because you're always going. <laughs> so like, it's a trigger in your brain that you're taking in enough oxygen. Yeah. Which is like this, crazy just the people that people are stressed out because they're not breathing which is a automatic you know response to life yeah we kind of need oxygen to survive right it's funny this whole conversation is relating around one little thing and that's the cell phone right that's 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 the i mean it's it's such a blessing as well as just it's been so awful <laughs> uh, it's it, it's amazing. I mean, you can find so much. You have so download this podcast and then put your phone in your pocket. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> well, you have to look at it in a couple of different ways. It's a very useful tool, right? It's open a lot of hara- It's you know open up a lot of doors, a lot of knowledge. It's kind of this um, love it, hate it thing. It, yeah. If you no, use it in the way that. You, you know, there's positive ways to use it and negative ways to use it, I guess. Yeah. Right? A- absolutely. There's positive, like downloading this posca- podcast. <laughs> right. um, and there's the negative where it's just like these kids are just walking along, earbuds in, wearing all black clothing, hood up, and just looking down at their screen and not right. paying attention to what's happening. Life's passing the them car, by. The mm-hmm. car that's about to hit them on the right. side road. <laughs> right. Well, that's like, I mean, uh, I just took Hunter's safety, like... Four years ago or something like that. Uh, so Josh and I could hunt. And they did like this whole map reading course. And I'm like, I'm so goddamn ashamed of myself that I couldn't read a map till now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where like I got to learn. So like I'm actually pretty proficient at reading a map now. But it all spawned from Hunter's safety because I'm so used to typing in my coordinates on my phone and then the GPS is taking me there. You know what I mean? You're talking so, about a street map or like a wilderness topographical map? Topographical map. You know what I mean? And which is in relation, like, so if you learn how to do that, I feel like reading a street map or a road map is so much easier because it's like labeled and simple or whatever. So like 
I can actually read a topographical map pretty well now, but because I was so ashamed of myself that I couldn't before, like till I was almost 30, you know what I mean? I'm like, man, I'm a goddamn idiot. <laughs> but, is it, but that's why it's because up until then I was like, Oh, I'm just going to put the coordinates in my Google earth and it'll tell me how to drive there. <laughs> so it's funny you bring this up cause this then kind of feeds right into, um, what you do professionally, uh, Sears school instructor. Yep, that's my secondary you, job. Secondary job, yeah, sorry. So uh, the, my main job, my MOS in the Marine Corps is F-18 WISO, Weapons Systems Officer. And so the main job <laughs> is to fly. Um, and then basically you come and do... Way, way, way cooler than anything else she's <laughs> talked about so far. <laughs> you, do, you do a secondary job as an officer. Uh, they don't let you stay there forever. That would be heaven, right? Flying all day long for your entire career. So they make you go out and get a well-rounded resume, if you will, by doing a different job. And mm -hmm. so SEER school... I had to go through SEER school as an aviator uh, because we have a high risk of capture. Because uh, we're always flying across enemy lines, if you right. will. And so I've been to SEER school, and it's a pretty good gig because you're basically up in Maine playing in the woods all day. Right. Well, not all day, but part of the time. Right. Um, and so I couldn't uh, refuse that. So uh, just uh, to make everybody understand, like a SEER school, that's, that stands for? Uh, survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. Okay. And there's multiple SEER schools, from what I understand. There's in, in, in different departments as well as... Yep, and this is all open source information you know you can find on the internet as far as you know locations things like that. So, yep. So the Navy, Marine Corps. So the Navy and Marine Corps are the same thing. Okay. Uh, well, they're not the same thing, but they both belong to the <laughs> Department of the Navy. I cannot. My Marines would kill me if they heard me say that. Um, they belong to the Department of the Navy. So we have two schools: one in San Diego, and one up here. Um, and then the Army has their own. Uh, different aspects of each branch might have their own as well. Right. Uh, and then the Air Force has their own as well. So each branch handles it a little bit differently and what they do with SEER specialists, et cetera. Um, it, well, it's it's awesome because I, I was so excited to, to have Josh on because uh, you're, you're on the other sorry, <laughs> side of the continent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it... As far as like the Marine Corps, uh, Navy, SEER school, uh, what exactly does that entail? So the whole premise, uh, SEER school was basically created back in the day because we noticed after um, a lot of, during a lot of the wars at the Korean War, et cetera, um, that people didn't have any tools. So if they were captured uh, in some respect, aspect, sorry, they had no tools to resist, you know, to basically succeed and come out um, with integrity and come out good on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're able to kind of break down what a lot of the POWs went through in different stages and come up with the curriculum to kind of help people. Uh, so for it's ma mainly for people who have a high risk of capture. So people who are working behind enemy lines, people who are on the front lines, uh, who the enemy can grab. Etc. And by enemy, I'm just doing a overall term. No matter what military you're in, etc. Everyone has a proverbial enemy, right? Right. And then it teaches them things. So survival. <clears throat> so things like things you want to survive. Anything that uh, bear grills you can see on TV, right? Water procurement, food procurement, navigation, etc. Right. And it incorporates aspects in there of obviously, if you're stuck behind enemy lines, you want to be rescued. So a lot of PR stuff, you know, communicating to get rescued out of the area. Uh, survival evasion. So you're not just hanging out there for a daily hike, 
You know, you're actually being chased right. by someone who wants to capture you at that point. And so kind of how to avoid capture. Resistance. I mean, you're if you get captured, they probably want to know some things. Um, so tools and techniques to maintain your composure. Right. Um, and then escape. Well, if you're captured, you probably want to get out of there. Uh, but it's really ruled and governed by the code of conduct. And that's the thing. The code of conduct is a code that was established by the DOD to basically give tools and techniques to service members about like who's in charge and what do I do? What do I do here? You know, am I allowed to take parole? Am I allowed to be released? You know, things like that. Giving them rules of how to act uh, in captivity and how to be a service member and what kind of conduct you do. So it's a pretty sweet school. I mean, it's probably the best course I've ever been to in my career because it really, you know, breaks you down. You know, it breaks you down to see how you act in a very stressful situation. Right. And it teaches you a lot of valuable skills that are just valuable outside of the military. Uh, so it's a really tough course for some people. The course in the West Coast is a little bit different than the course on the East Coast. Uh, and it definitely pushes people to their limits physically and mentally. Um, it's, I wish everyone could go through some sort of SEER school just for the aspect of pushing themselves to the envelope and seeing how you react and being able to you know, deal with it and gain some insight and some tools to keep yourself together. Yeah, you know? so this is this is uh, ex- I mean, this is extremely interesting to us because um, this is the kind of stuff we've been talking all uh, along is is the the physical and mental reaction to um, like like getting yourself ready to do whatever you it is you do, whether it's going into battle or going going into a CrossFit gym or going into an MMA match. Um, the physical and mental aspect of of not only getting yourself ready but also uh, surviving it, whatever you're going into and, and going into SEER school, you personally, I mean, like how, what were your feelings on, on, uh, going into it? it was just like, were, were you very like tense, like very worried about going into it or, or. Well, it just plays on the whole fear of the unknown, which we face right. every day in our entire lives. Mm-hmm. You know, those things scare us the most is what we don't know. You know, if we knew what was going to happen next, probably a little less a little more relaxed about it right. but because you don't know what's happening next you know you have you know your blood your blood pressure you know elevates your heart rate elevates everything starts going and uh so going in i was excited i mean it's kind of fun right, right? <laughs> <laughs> i mean not everyone people would pay if this is a civilian course right and i'm sure some, there are some that exist out there thousands of dollars for this training right. i mean it's ridiculous and we're getting it for free off the government's dime because, you know, they need to provide the service to us. Um, so it's kind of like, this is going to be good. All right. right. Um, you get some idea of what's going to happen. And, um, yeah, I, I guess if I answered your question, I was nervous, but I was also really excited. And I think that's the general attitude. Of course, you have some people who are like, hell no, I'm never doing that. I will do everything I can to not do this course. Right. Uh, but generally, people know they need to do it. They're required to do it. It's not like they have a choice right. in some instances. And um, yeah, it's great, great training. What are, uh, without getting in too much detail, because I know that you can't, um, what are some of the tools? Uh, mentally and physically they think that they provide you with that would be good for the general public like as far as dealing with with physical and mental stress like is there like a, a, a core method that they give you or um, some things they like remind you of like do this like keep doing this or, like do they re- reiterate some certain tools and aspects and skills for the physical and the mental or is it more one or the other or 
that I mean, you can pass on. It covers the spectrum of everything. I mean, physically, it's just, I don't know if there's so much to reiterate there. It's kind of, in the military, very often it's embrace the suck. Right. And this sucks right now, but this is your job, embrace it. You can view it from a couple of different ways. And with survival scenario, a lot of times, even if you have good food procurement skills, you're probably going to meet a caloric deficit. Right. Right. So a lot of it's like saving energy, making the smart decisions of what you need to do, what you don't need to do. Right. right? Not wasting the energy because God knows when you're going to get picked up. Right. Um, and so physically, obviously, it's always helpful to be in shape. You right. know, you never know what type of environment you're going into. Um, being aware of right. what's going on around you, oddly enough. Weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, aspects like that. I mean, yeah. And then mentally... Mentally, it's nothing different than you, you know, on a sports team, et cetera. There's absolutely, you know, specific tools and techniques, but a lot of it's just knowing your limits, you know, knowing when you're reaching there and then, you know, stabilizing yourself and knowing that like, it's just keeping true to yourself. So at some point you might like get broken down and you might do something that you would never do normally. And it's not beating yourself up about it. Right. You know, we all fail. Right. different things in our life and i think one of the keys to success is knowing that that failure does not uh that, that is not you right you know you just need to pick yourself back up and go back at it and right. try your next best effort right. you know you're not always going to win right you know you're not always going to be the winner you don't always get a trophy right. but you just pick yourself up and keep moving forward you know that the highest tiers of our society or the people we deem as successful have failed countless times right. and they just pick themselves back up so it's just that mentality of like you know if you, you know, fuck up like, all right, wait in a little bit, but then learn something from it and get up and try again. Right. You yeah, know, if you don't learn from your mistakes, then right. uh, then you've already lost. And a great quote is, don't don't let your failures of yesterday make your decisions today. Yeah. You know, I mean, like that's kind of where that go, goes along with that stuff. That's funny. That that seems to be uh, everyone that I talk to about success. That's like, don't be afraid to fail. And if you do fail, learn something from it and move on. Don't mm-hmm. wallow in your, you know. Your your misery about failing. Yeah. So the, the uh, <clears throat> so there's obviously a physical side where I mean it's it's physical stamina and and dealing with the environment that you're you're in. Um, so just out of curiosity, is there a more physical um, uh, side to it? As as in like uh, you have uh, scenarios where you are captured. And you have to deal with um, basically being a captured uh, captured person. Well, yeah, I mean, just by the name of it, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. You okay. kind of got to go through all the different phases. So, so you have to be mentally resistant of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the whole point of SEER um, is to challenge you in a safe environment. Okay. Right? I'd rather, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of SEER uh, and... You know, I, I won't go into that as far as the criticisms, but really when it comes down to it, if we're at war and I have a chance of being captured, you know, everything we do is safe, completely and utterly safe beyond like, oh my God, it's so safe. It's ridiculous. It's annoyingly safe because there's so many things we have to worry about to make sure it's safe. Um, oh God. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so I'd rather have someone in a safe environment push me to my envelope then have the first time that happens be someone who does not like me very much and doesn't care if I succeed, live, or die. Gotcha. You know, and uh, that's basically what's serious, someone testing you physically. You know, everything's a safe environment. This is your place to grow. 
Yeah. So that when you go out there on the front lines and something, God forbid, happens to you, it won't be the first time you see it. Yeah. This is not the first time you're going to see everything. No, they do, they do psychological, um, uh, just play mind games with you. Uh, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of everything. I mean, think about what you'd expect if you got captured, etc. I mean, it's... All I can, I mean, I can't speak yeah. for it, if you will, but it's its super safe. And there is nothing unsafe or malicious or um, unres- irresponsible or anything about it. If See, the funny thing is, as a student, though, you don't feel that. Right. And that's probably part of it. You shouldn't. Like The whole point is to stress you out. As a, coming in and being a uh, someone who's there and watching the background of it, it's so ridiculously safe. Right. I mean, and everything's monitored and nothing is out of hand. And it's it's a great, valuable, it's just amazing training. Right. Amazing training. Well, it's funny because every one of our guests so far has had some experience with the Sears School, which is funny. Uh, Josh was an instructor there. Mm-hmm. Elliot went to Sears School. And now you're instructing and been there. Um, and having conversations, especially with Josh, because just because I've had so much conversation with him about just you know, sitting in the woods or whatever and, mm-hmm. you know, talk about everything. Um, it seemed like uh, when he was there teaching, it almost changed him as an individual because of the aspect of, you know, I need to take care of these kids and, and prepare them and things like that. It was almost like his whole attitude changed. You can remember him telling me a story about how, like, there was this one kid that he just, like, I, I don't know if he did it per se or, like, the, the program just kind of broke him mentally. Like, it, he... <laughs> he had like a mental breakdown and Josh like after the day was done and he did all the requirements or whatever kind of had to take this kid aside and learn how and, and figure out the specifics of how to build this kid back up so that he could continue with the program and be as prepared as he could be. So uh, it almost like he had to, uh, he went into full on like teacher nurturer coaching mode and had to like, so it was one of those things where like, yeah, it's mentally taxing and physically taxing, but it's there for their own benefit. You know what I mean? Yeah, Which was really cool. Every instructor is that teacher, counselor, right. mentor mode, and that's their job. Right. And that's what makes them such great instructors. Right. It's a very you can't just teach anyone can uh, no one can just teach at Sears School. You have to be right. you have to go through a process right. to make sure you can teach there. Right. And the whole ever from the moment, no matter if the person as a student, the person is doing something you don't like, right. like and you you think they're horrible. Um, they're there to teach you and they will teach you along the way. And then after the course is done, they'll go through everything again with you and tell you where you can improve right. things. You did great. Right. The whole point is building that student back right. up. The whole point is to get them through the course. Uh, cause it's some of the most valuable uh, training they'll ever have. Right. And you are, you are, it's your instructor, right? You're an instructor from the get go, even though you're doing things that, you know, might not be the nicest seeming right. or whatever. You're an instructor, right? No, I think that was just his like his aha moment. Mm-hmm. He was telling me about, and it was cool to see him make that kind of that that bridge that gap between you know being that guy who was a a, a gunfighter in the the Middle East to you know switching roles and and taking what he had learned and everything and kind of applying it. He kind of you could see his eyes kind of light up, and he had this this epiphany almost. It was really cool to see. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. This is your second job we're talking about. <laughs> well, I, so I, I, before we move on, I oh, want to, um, so we talked a little bit about the mental aspect of it and, you know, this podcast started as like a physical culture thing, whatever. Yeah. Um, and is there, are there physical skills that you think, um, that are really important, like to 
to survive that situation and 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 for daily life or, or things that you find come up all the time about like like these are the skills a lot of people are lacking and these are the the, the physical skills you should like. absolutely i mean especially and more and more every day american society is teetering towards uh the less physically fit than the more physically fit right. where the people who are physically fit are a minority in the population right i mean in general having those that cardiovascular threshold you know I mean, you're moving, you're hiking, having that strength, right. you know, you don't know for the realm of this, you don't know what environment you're going to be dropped off in. Right. So having that strength to walk up mountains, right. you know, to, uh, to simple skills about swimming, you know, but for physically, the biggest thing, CrossFit is actually great for this as is jujitsu. Jujitsu gives you tools to defend yourself as well. Right. Mental, uh, focus and flexibility, things like that. CrossFit gives you overall strength. So CrossFit is, you know, a huge, great fitness program for that. Um, having that muscular strength to lift a heavy load, to pull yourself up and over something, to climb up a tree, to see where you need to go. That endurance aspect to get from point A to point B in a timely manner. Right. You know, um, I think CrossFit and Brazilian, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and most things that are physically demanding of you require you to have a sharp mind. Right. Require you to maintain your composure. Um, so you, I think it, they always combine that mental and physical aspect. Right. And so, I mean, the easy answer is, is just be in freaking shape. Right. I mean, if you are, you know, lifting things, you know, you have that uh, structure for your body. You have those things, uh, the secondary muscle groups, you know, good to go to stabilize the primary muscle groups, to stabilize your, you know, your skeleton so you don't have musculoskeletal injuries happening, things like that where you can take that load and that stress on your body of being right. out there for many days. I mean, that's what it comes down to, just be in shape. And that's what it's, I see students come up to SEER school out of shape. Right. And they're in for a rude awakening. Right. And it, it, they don't want to continue. Right. You know, and uh, it's just America, we're not in great shape. And so you're first, if you want to survive, if the apocalypse happens, Armageddon is tomorrow. Right. Uh, I'm pretty sure the people who are in shape or are really, really smart, I think it's kind of both, right. are going to get through the first week. Right. And people who aren't, because you got to move. You're a human being. Right. You yeah, have to be able to move. It's funny that we've we've come so far as as uh, as a culture and a race that like we actually have to say like, hey, you need to do this stuff, uh, to, like the general physical preparedness. Right. It's like that should be a given. Right. I mean, it should. It, it should be a given. It was a given for for however many years, and we've just evolved through through uh, technology and, and and advancement that like people are becoming way too sedentary. Right. Um. And and you you really should be physically prepared for any given situation. I, mean, I think if you're in the woods and there's four of you and there's a bear coming after you. Right. All right. You're either going to survive off your physicality or you're going to survive being really freaking smart. Right. Right. And that bear is probably going to get the person who's neither. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, I gotta get. That's, in that's I gotta easy, get in better shape. That, that, that's an easy answer. The guy that's out of shape, I'm gonna outwit him, and I'm gonna run away. Right. They only need to get one. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. I really got tripping the other guys. <laughs> then, then you're smart. See, it's um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's it's you really should be generally prepared for for anything. Like even in. Uh, even in normal society, like like any given situation, like you, if your car breaks down in the middle of the freaking road, and 
all you have to do is just give it a little bit of a nudge to get it off the side of the road so that right. your car doesn't get smashed into. Just having a little bit of physicality to push your car off to the side of the road. Well, it's like our boy Tim Kennedy says, fit people are usually more fi- uh, useful and generally harder to kill. Oh, that's that's uh, Ripitel. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that's Mark Ripitel. Yeah. Um, I love that quote. I absolutely love that quote. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, back to so being... We glossed over the fact that you're a fighter pilot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to gloss over that. Because uh, that is pretty badass. That, that is absolutely pretty badass. It's a good um, time. And, and there's... Am I correct by saying that there's not too many female um, fighter pilots out there? Uh, it depends. So, uh, so the Marine Corps has two fixed-wing platforms. About to have three. They have the F-18 and they have the Harrier. All right. Uh, the Navy has uh, F-18. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and then, of course, bigger fixed-wing assets. These are jet assets. I guess I'm talking about. And in general, no. I mean, the military as a whole doesn't have very many females. And then, as you break it down by branch, you know, the Marine Corps as a whole is small in general, right? Uh, where the tip of the spear, you know, and then. Break it down to more, you know, females. It's a mentality. We're a fighting force. The Marine Corps is all about fighting. That's what we do. We don't have doctors. That's the Navy. The Navy provides our doctors for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all the support we have is for the infantrymen on the deck. That's why we exist is for our riflemen on the deck. And that's why aviation in the Marine Corps exists is that we're able to uh, provide that support forward for that, you know, Lance Corporal on the deck in the sand so they can survive and do their mission. So the entire of the Marine Corps exists for one purpose, and that's for the infantrymen. Um, and so when you have a fighting force like that, and for so long, women cannot be in a combat role, it's going to be predominantly male, and therefore the amount of females in the Marine Corps is, is small. Mm. Correct. And so in aviation, <coughs> pardon me, that carries over as well. So women couldn't even fly in a combat uh, role in aviation until like 1995. So it's relatively new. And... Uh, when you add that into the, into the mix as well, the generation of females coming through was probably like the third iteration of females coming through an aviation pipeline. And so, yeah, there's not a whole lot. I'm a Wizzo, and so the Marine Corps has two different types of F-18 aircraft. We have single-seat aircraft, and then we have dual-seat, like a front-to-back cockpit configuration. So the pilot's the guy who flies it, does a bunch of stuff, does all, all the things as well. And the Wizzo my whole job in life is to work the sensors, to navigate, talk on the radio, uh, and the pilot and I work as a team to get the mission done. So in a good two-seat cockpit, it can happen in half the time of a single-seat cockpit. In a bad two-seat cockpit, where you don't get along, (laughs) it can take double the time (laughs) to get shit done. And so that's kind of where we're at. When I was in the squadron, there's uh, three females uh, when I got there, and then when I left, I think there were four. And now I just went back to visit the other day. There's zero. Uh, as far as pilots, female pilots, jet pilots in the Marine Corps, I don't think there's that many. I mean, definitely less than 10% of Marine Corps aviation is female, I'd have to say. I know, for the most part, my peer group, I mean, there's been like 10, 10 to 15, 10 maybe, 10 to 12, I don't know. Uh, females in a squadron where there's like 40 people you'll have three to four females maybe in the actual aviators flying and then you have the maintenance department and there's more females in there etc but yeah so there's not not a ton of us but i think it's just a 
it's a machine. I mean, it's relatively new. Right. And, you know, it takes time to get people in areas and time to get over preconceived notions right. of ability uh, and things like that. And not everyone's going to make it. Your skyline the entire time. It, it's a great feel. I mean, aviation's awesome. Marine Corps aviation is great. I mean, talk about life or death decisions, you know, every day and kind of it's, uh, it's, it's a great, great job. Have you ever been able to uh, fly in one of the Harriers? <coughs> That's the no, it's seat? a single seat. Oh, okay. So basically the Marine Corps is going to the F-35, uh, which is a fifth-generation aircraft, and it has that vertical takeoff capability that the Harrier has. Mm-hmm. And so that's where my seat went. <laughs> uh, my seat went to a fan that allows it to do lift off vertically. And so Wizzo's, my job, is going away completely in the Marine Corps. Um, oh, I did forget our Prowler brethren. Uh, we do also have prowlers in the Marine Corps, but I think they just phase those out as well. That's another fixed-wing jet aircraft right. and that does uh, more of an electronic warfare mission. So, But the F-18 is a great aircraft. It's one of the best. It's There's the older ones, which is Alpha through Delta, and then you have the new guys, which is like Echo, Foxtrot, and Golf. And uh, it's a multi-mission aircraft, which makes it so great. You know, Harrier has one job, really. It was It's cast. It's things like that. Close air support going forward, dropping bombs. It's not so much an air-to-air fighting aircraft. Right. Um, but the, the F-18 is about everything. It can do everything. It can go in and support itself coming in air-to-air combat. It can drop bombs. It can do. It has you know, six mission sets. It can do everything, and that's the beauty of the aircraft. You know, it's all weather. It's night. It's everything. Right. Um, so they are phasing out the older aircraft, though, as the F-35 comes in, and soon the Marine Corps fleet will just be F-35s. So... And people have different opinions about that. <laughs> but. Um, were you, uh, have you, what kind of missions have you, have you flown in um, across the board? Just this and that. You train in all of them. So right. I was with uh, VMFA uh, All Weather 225, the Vikings out in San Diego. And uh, we did two deployments over to Japan. So it's kind of about where you are as far as going into combat and right. like going over to Afghanistan and Iraq. It's kind of what they need as a mission set, what type of platform they need, and if you're just, I don't know, lucky enough to get out there. Right. So, like, even during World War II, things like that, not all the squadrons got to do cool shit. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not a matter of how good or how bad you are a lot of times. It's a matter of how mission-ready you are, right. uh, with uh, how many like, qualifications you have, and then if you're just in the right place at the right time for them to, you know, rotate you in that theater. So, we didn't get to go to Afghanistan or Iraq uh, when I was there. And we went over to Japan a couple times. And at that point, it's a deployment for, you know, six, seven months. And you're out there training. You're always training like you're at war. It's, you know, long days. And that's the general life of a, you know, aviator. You're there all the time because you have such a standard where there's no room for error. Right. Everything's perfect. Everything's verbatim. You have to know how your weapon systems work. You have to know how your aircraft works. So you're a mechanic. You know, <laughs> you're an right. expert on your missiles and bombs. Right. You know, you got to know tactics. So you're an expert in all the tactics that right. are out there. And so it's a very all-encompassing job that has a you know elite level of people working there. Um, some of the coolest people you meet, biggest nerds ever. Right. You know, it's not like Maverick. <laughs> it's right. like right. people, you know, to be that level, they're really cool and they know how to party and they know how to fly. Right. And uh, most times they're kind of nerdy. Right. Um, so the majority of your time is made up training when you're on deployment still? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're always training. You're always trying to get a new qualification. Right. Um, and there's certain, uh, there's like a manual for certification, if you will, different flights you have to get in 
different things you have to do. And then once you do all those, you get your next qualification. And then you have your next qualification. You have your next one. And it never really ends. And right. if you get chosen, you get to go Top Gun. Or you get to go to uh, Weapons Tactics Instructor Course, WTI. Right. Um, so there's always something. Like, it's an ongoing education. Well, is there, um, like, we talked to Elliot last time kind of about um, his experience in the military and, and how he would go and be on patrol and he was around the Horn of Africa and all things like that. And, you know, his whole thing was looking for pirates, I guess, was his, uh, his, his main mission. Is there kind of a, a, an aspect of that when you're on deployment in a jet too, or is it just, you're very like focused on battle and not so much on other aspects. And I mean, like, is there like, do you, do, do you get to go on, I mean, is there like a patrolling aspect of it or anything like that that you get to do? Or is it just mainly training and then when they say, we're going to war, we're going to war? Well, it's kind of whatever they tell us to do. Right. I, you know, and for everything that I've been on, it's just, it's training. You know, it's um, training to be ready if right. something happens and being at a proficiency level that is necessary. Right. But we do a lot of cool things working with different countries, you right. know, joint uh, exercises and, you know, the ops tempo always feels like, you know, you're... You're always doing something. You're right. never, you know, right. get a rest. It, right. It's, um, yeah, no no patrolling or anything like that. The, the F-18 is great because it can do all that, too. It can do everything. Right. Not everything, but right. it's pretty awesome. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, so it, you're, how much longer are you going to be able to fly be, before you, you said it's going to be, your position is going to be phased out? Yeah. So I think they're hoping to keep the F-18 Delta around, uh, until like 2025 or something. So it's going to be around for a little bit longer. Oh, okay. So it's not like, like in the next few years or. Originally it was, you know, and they keep pushing it back. Well, so <laughs> that's good for you. Right? The, the, the F-35 is taking a little bit longer than they assumed to get a mission ready right. and into the fleet so i'm better the safe than sorry i guess work those <laughs> yeah. bugs out before they <laughs> put them somewhere you think thing. yeah right. so what kind of uh, f- uh physical duress do you experience when you're in a cockpit and you're flying and just depends what mission you're on so there's missions where you're just flying flying straight and level and you're hanging out um and then there's missions where you're doing uh basic fighter maneuvers so basically what you kind of see uh, I guess I don't know if you see it on Top Gun because they just do like tail chasing on Top Gun. Uh, basic fighter maneuvers <laughs> is like if you're going to go in combat and you meet another aircraft right. and you're, it's, uh, it's called within visual range. Right. So you're within visual range of each other and so you're basically doing like all these turns and trying to get inside their circle and, you know, kill them. Um, and so you're pulling a lot of Gs. You're doing a lot of really intense maneuvers. Right. And so... Uh, at that point, that could be kind of exhausting on the body because you're going like seven G's here, you know, back down to two, up to five. And as a whizzo in the back seat, you're there to help the pilot. So a lot of times, you know, when you're, if you're coming on head, uh, nose and nose on an aircraft and you pass each other, the pilot can only see so much. You right. know, the, the canopy only goes so far and his neck can only turn so much. So as a whizzo in the back seat, you're able to, since you're not flying the plane, you know, like push yourself around. And look a little further where they went so he right. can, you can tell your pilot. And then right. he can maneuver where he needs to go for whatever we need to do to kill them. Um, and so a lot, of, yeah, a lot of Gs. You have to go through uh, kind of a centrifuge uh, in training to make sure you can uh, stand, with, stand, stand the with Gs. Stand <laughs> Which is the that's, funniest that's the, stuff the you'll thing. ever see. If you, Google, <laughs> uh, if you go on Google and Google G-Lock videos, <laughs> hilarious. 
absolutely hilarious because people <laughs> and they just pass out. So you're in the centrifuge, you know, and you're going and they uh, there's a method to not pass out because when you get G's on your body, your blood flows out of your head right. down. So when the blood leaves your head, what happens? I, try, I no tried to home. let Scott experience this yesterday, oh, yeah. but, but he, would, he, he wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you asked me at a restaurant. <laughs> really funny. <laughs> hey, we're just going to make this guy go to sleep in the middle of a restaurant. <laughs> so what happens is your 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 the blood leaves your brain. Yeah, it leaves your bl- uh, brain. So if you Google Lieutenant Dan rocks the G-lock, it's a... All right, here, I'll, I'll put it, turn it on. This is what actually one of my buddies in the squadron I flew with, and this is him. Your body goes into a G-lock. There's an A-lock and a G-lock. G-lock is completely no one's home. You're unaware, nothing's happening. An A-lock, someone's still home, but they don't know you're outside. You know, like they, their eyes are moving, but they, they can't cognitively understand right. that something's happening. So no, you, wear, you wear specific suits for this, obviously. You do. It's called G-suit or speed pants. I mean... Any number of things. Right. So the profile that you're seeing right now is he's basically going to go up. He's going to execute a maneuver called the Hick Maneuver, uh, where you're basically tensing everything and trying to keep that blood in your brain. And it's a type of breathing. So now the Gs are hitting him. He's up at, I think, seven and a half Gs now. And you have to hold it for like 20 seconds. So it's, And he's looking off to his... Uh, right or left, which what? makes it even more difficult. So now he just G-locked. This is him G-locking. No one's home. They're slowing down the centrifuge to be at 1G. Now he just dreamed. So something that happens when you G-lock sometimes is you have the most vivid dreams of your life. Back. And he's back. He's back. <laughs> uh, I'm, wow. So... <laughs> I mean, his face was, looked like it literally was melting. Right now. <laughs> so... The, um, so I have, I have a, a plethora of questions. Yeah, go ahead. Just, just do, because because I'm kind of an expert at putting people to sleep. <laughs> this is great. But um, right. so what's the difference between G lock? Like, like, what is the f- physical difference between G lock and A lock? Like, like what spawns one or the other? Ooh, that's a good question. I think for a G lock, and this is just me talking out of my ass, if you will, but this is what I think I remember from training. G lock is all the blood's gone. Like it's like if you do a hold, you know, the rear choke hold or whatever, yeah. and you're totally cutting off the flow of blood, uh, blood to their brain. Kind of the same thing. Uh, they pass out. All right. right. Um, a lock is. I think there's still some residual. And right. Someone's just you know you kind of just shut off, but right. you haven't completely shut off right and so there's still the ability for the brain to kind of do some things but it's not able to process right so would you say it's like a severity of the two like one is like do like do you go through a lock before you get to g lock no, not necessarily it uh depends every time's different right so some people will you know a lock some people will g lock but the way i've seen it is once they a lock they're kind of done so right. they shut down the machine anyways right. um and so g lock is the funniest though because people do weird stuff I mean, they lose control of their limbs, like you just saw. Well, uh, I, oh, so funny story. And I, you could tell me if this is G-lock or A-lock because I have no idea. But so I've put a couple people to sleep on accident and on purpose, actually. But um, so last time I put someone to sleep, it was this kid and I was choking him and he threw his leg over my head so I couldn't see. And he was out for a lot longer than I intended him to be. Or like, I didn't intend to put him out, but it was a, it was a strangulation. When I let it go, he fell on the ground, but his eyes were still open, and he was snoring. 
And then to revive someone, and I don't even know if this is medical science or whatever, but it's what you're taught to do is you lift their legs so all the blood goes back to their head. But when I lifted his legs, his arms went up too, and but his eyes were open, so he's like staring into my soul, <laughs> snoring, and his arms were moving on their own. I thought I killed the kid. And then he came back to him and he was like, what? What's the big deal? Whatever. So I was like, that was the freakiest thing I've ever seen. Like I put a lot of people to sleep, and that was like the most severe one. And I, but that's kind of what it's like. You like, yeah. Have you ever been put to sleep? So we talked about this last night. I've only really <laughs> been put to sleep one time, and I think it wasn't. It was like the walls closed in, and then I came back too real fast. Yep, that's kind of what happens. Right. So as all this is going down, which you can't, what you can't see is his point of view right. when he's going through this. So what's happening is as the blood is leaving his brain, right. uh, it gets kind of like right. uh, you know when you have a TV station, there's nothing on, right? All right, and then the circle. Right, this black right, circle right. comes in, yeah. mm-hmm. and you could squeeze your legs, right. and it goes back out. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, it, well, it just, well, it's just the blood. It's the right. blood coming back up, or right. you can, and then you let it go, right. and then it, you can squeeze and it comes back out. So he's seeing this nice circle come in, come in, come in, and then, oop, and you're done. Right. Um, well, yeah. it was funny because I was on top of somebody, and like I came back too, and we are on the third floor of this building where our academy was, and I was like, but my legs went numb. So I thought the floor was vibrating. So I'm like, oh, my God, this building's going to fall down. <laughs> and then, like, so I, I'm like, all right, right, like, whatever. Like, I got, came back, too. And then, like, the feeling came back in my legs. And my I had gi pants on, and we had been training a lot. So my legs were all sweaty. <laughs> and when I, <laughs> I got the feeling back in my legs, I thought I peed myself. Because my legs, <laughs> my pants were so wet. I was like, oh, my God, I just pissed myself in front of all these people. And I was like, oh, no, it's just sweat, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only that's the only time I've been to sleep. But everyone like I've put people to sleep when they woke up and they're like, I had this dream. I yeah. went to a family reunion and all my family were rabbits. Like like weird <laughs> like and they're out for like five seconds. And it's the most vivid I've been right. I've been I yeah, my friend knocked me out once for fun and <laughs> <laughs> just like as a kid you know sometimes you do the hyperventilating See, Scott, thing. everyone cool's doing it yeah. <laughs> and i don't remember to come to your peer <laughs> i don't remember passing out but we did the whole hyperventilating thing and they push on your chest and then you pass out right. probably not the healthiest thing most likely why i don't have an advanced college degree um <laughs> but i remember you know i passed out i remember this dream and when i woke up i thought the dream was reality and i was coming back i was waking up into a dream does that make sense yeah. like the dream felt more real than reality yeah, felt that real. Ha- yeah that that is a very common occurrence I, yep. i've probably seen 25 people go to sleep and wake back up and i would say more than half the time they don't know that they're back awake it's fucking hilarious it's so funny that's, that's interesting yeah um when in the video that he's he's uh He's not exactly looking right at the camera. He's, yep. He has his head turned. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a, for a specific reason? Yeah, it actually ch- it changes changes things. I mean, your head's cocked to one side because when you're flying, you're not always looking straight forward. You right. know, you're looking up, you're looking left, you're looking right, you're looking down. So when you have your head cocked in different directions, it's gonna the blood flow is gonna be different. And it's actually harder. It's harder okay. when you so, look over your shoulder. So this was like an uh, th- he had to. T- yeah, there's like a sticker right here on your off to the side, and they tell you to look at the sticker, and then oh, you start okay. the profile. So this is like the last profile. There's like three you do one to find your G tolerance, your resting G tolerance. This is where that begins. Right. So everyone's different. So females have been shown to have a better resting G tolerance than men, generally because of higher body fat composition. Right. Um, and then things like being short help out. Uh, hydration, diet, right. things like that change your ability to handle G's all the time. 
And so everyone's a bit different. I would assume that being overly hydrated helps your G tolerance. Yeah, it's better to be hydrated than right. not So if you go out partying, raging the night before, you know, right. and then you come to fly the next day, <laughs> you're, you're dehydrated, well. you're not going to do as well. What, uh, what what diet helps with that? A normal healthy diet. So like... I don't, you know, actually I've seen some things about a fatty diet kind of right. helping. Well, that's but what I mean. Like, yeah. is, there, is there like a, a, more, a more specific macro? No, I think it's just more so eating in general. Right. I think people, if you come in and you're party the night before, you're puking your guts out, and you come in to fly the next day, and you've been dehydrated, you don't have, you ate like a granola bar for breakfast, right. empty stomach, dehydration, you're not going to be able to handle the stresses on your body, logically so, right. uh, as someone who has been hydrated and has had a good meal. But it doesn't matter like higher protein or higher carbohydrate. There's probably or the science fat. out there, yeah. I just don't know it. Right. I'm, yeah. curi- I'm curious if, if uh, having like that ketogenic uh, diet where like you have a higher fat, uh, intake as opposed to carbohydrate that would have any effect on on the I brain function fat's very I water soluble know. too so that would probably make sense if being hydrated you know what i mean like hmm. you generally if you are eating a higher fat diet you have yeah. more water in your system i think yeah it, it if we had a flight surgeon here they could probably tell you <laughs> yeah, none, none of this is on the the diet stops at diet on the internet yeah so, <laughs> sounds yeah. like bro science bros Oh, that's what this podcast is all about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you should probably call it out as bro science. <laughs> yeah. Bro science. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in the, I, I've always been curious. Um, flight suits. Do you just go? In uh, the flight suit? No, you don't. Um, <laughs> you don't go. See, so this is it's an interesting thing because for men it's easy. Uh, so the flight suit, the zipper comes down where your zipper does in your pants, if you will. And for guys, it's, it's, it's like taking a piss, Scott. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's so I think some airplanes have piss tube. Sorry, P tubes. Um, <laughs> the F eighteen doesn't. So basically, you have a pee bag, and so the guys like you'll always know when they're peeing because like I'm in the back seat because. They'll put it on autopilot, but then they'll accidentally hit the stick or something, and the jet will just move. And uh, but they usually tell you they're peeing because they're unavailable at that time. Um, and so they just you know pee in the bag and do their thing, lo- you know, lock it all up, put it in their flight bag, and then when they get done, they'll dump it, you know, put it in the trash. Right. Um, sometimes they, <laughs> you've heard horror stories of people zipping themselves up <laughs> <laughs> in the in the bag. Yeah, so I've heard heard those horror stories before. And there's people uh, who've had to do the other thing in the jet as well. You know, number two. Yeah, yeah. That's got to be challenging. And, <laughs> the, and, of course, everyone can see in your cockpit. So, you know, if your wingman you know, decides to come in on in and take a look, they can see you doing all this stuff. So I've heard stories of successful attempts of, you know, getting the other thing done. <laughs> but at that point, so you're in an eight-point harness in the jet. So you have attachments uh, by your shoulders. Uh, you have attachments at your hips. You have uh, attachments down on your calves and then around your thighs. So if you have to do, if you're a female or you have to do the other, the number two, <laughs> you kind of have to dis, you know, unattach yourself. So, oh, by the way, you're on top of like a thousand pounds of dynamite or something for being an ejection seat. Right. So you probably don't want to hit that handle. That's there. So a lot of people will safe their seat. There's a little pin you can put through to safe your ejection seat so that you can't pull in the handle. Right. And they have to like, Weasel their way out of their flight suit to be able to get their bum, you know, <laughs> over the bag <laughs> to do their business. Right. Uh, so there's pretty some pretty funny stories about guys. And if you have a you know a smart ass pilot, they're like you know hit the sticks. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of stories out there, just really funny ones. Um, right. 
So women, it kind of carries over in all aspects, things like mountaineering as well, as far as how the hell do you pee? Because mountaineering, you're in a harness as well. You're in a rock climbing harness right. or just you know, a normal harness all the time because you're tied to everyone. So if you fall, you don't kill yourself. Uh, same thing in the jet. So I would actually dehydrate myself so I wouldn't have to pee. Because some of our longest trips across the uh, Pacific Ocean when we're going out to Japan, like, you know, long sweats like nine hours. Right. Ugh. And... So I just would make the choice to not, because for me, they make female flight suits where the zipper zips all the way around, right. but, but then you're sitting on the zipper and it's really uncomfortable. Right. Uh, so I think one time I tried to pee, I'm like, you know what, F it, I'm going to try this. Right. All right. I really need to go. You know, so you're like, hey man, I, I need to go back here just so you know. And I said, so I, you know, safe my seat, get out of the harness, you know, and like try to position myself somewhere on the seat to go. I just... It didn't work. I ended up giving up and just putting the bag back and just basically having to hold it the entire time and oh. like dying. Right. Um, but they make certain like funnels and pumps. So uh, like mountaineering, they have a bunch of female funnels now, which are godsend. <laughs> it is so much fun to write your name in the snow. You guys have had <laughs> <laughs> you guys have had the market on this for way too long. <laughs> Women should be able to do this too. <laughs> and so, so some of the funnels are better than others uh, in regards to this control, um, but they're pretty great because you don't have to take off any of your clothes. You just throw this thing in there and just pee. So same thing in the jet. There's been a lot of uh, research done on how to help women you know, release themselves while they're in the jet. So there's some normal funnels where it's just gravity fed, if you will. And then there's some that actually have like a, like a pump in there. So like, and it'll help suck the the urine into the bag uh, i have never tried either of those things but i have friends who have and they seem to work pretty well but you can you can do it it's just a matter of maneuvering yourself you think yeah. with the department of defense budget that they would you know have the, the the best piss pump on the face <laughs> of the planet instead <laughs> <Yeah>. of <laughs> a funnel with a bag Come on. Yeah, so, you know, I've never, yeah, I just chose not to. It just was more work than I wanted to put into it. Right. So I would just hold it, which is probably not healthy, but right. that's what I would do. Right. But the guys would go all the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious if the Department of Defense or, or, or any, like, flight, uh, dealing with, like, long flights or stuff like that have ever even, like, tinkered with, like, doing, like, catheters or, or something like that. I'm sure that. they have. Yeah. I mean, it, it also depends what type of aircraft you're in. So the C-130 actually has like a, a toilet in there um, that they can go. Uh, and then there's just a lot of things you do. Some, I mean, <laughs> I guess astronauts wear diapers. I remember that whole thing from a long time ago, that chick who like... Oh, that she drove across country <laughs> yeah. in a diaper? Yeah. So I don't think... I think I've well, actually I, I know like even before. like... like uh, Baja five five hundred trucks and things like that actually have like yeah. it's not like a catheter but it's like and it goes down the leg of there <laughs> yeah it's like a, it's basically a condom yeah with a tube on it and then they just pee on the floor of the truck and it like because the truck has no carpet or anything in it it just ends up draining well, out on the floor <laughs> or you know? even more than that is dries. have you heard of the stadium buddy yeah 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 that's nasty but yeah that's just wrong right <laughs> tell it's me about the stadium buddy. <laughs> apparently the river doesn't know anything about the stadium buddy and needs a visual uh so i i think it's uh i, I believe uh you could put me wrong on this one but i believe it is a condom catheter and it's a bag that straps around the uh bottom of your leg so that you can sit and watch sports without having to get up and drink as much Bud Light as possible. Lazy, right. lazy, lazy. Is this what our society has come to? I hope you're not wearing shorts when you're wearing that. <laughs> 
And you're probably single. And <laughs> and smell like piss all and the smell time. Like piss all the time. <laughs> oh, oh, there it is. It's like it's like a. It looks like wanna, a torture device. I, it, that that drawing definitely makes it look like a torture device. Right. <laughs> Those guys had oh. shorts on. <laughs> oh man, that's wow. not. You're that's pretty wrong. darn desperate at that that's point. Wrong. I don't right. think. I think How much? Oh, it's got an outlet tube on it too. Quite some time. You can put it down in your pant leg, so you're all set at the bottom there. Oh my god. It's just ridiculous. Right. <laughs> a piss bag is definitely something I'm not wearing on my ankle. Right. Ever. 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 It's pretty extreme. I mean, gr- granted, I don't have a medical reason for doing it. Like, people exactly. are doing this volunteer- yeah. voluntarily. There's unfortunate individuals out there that right. have to wear this stuff. Right. Um, which, I'm sorry, I can't stop. <laughs> Why don't you get me going? Stadium gal. Pals. There's oh, a stadium female gal. They stadium, do not. <laughs> stadium pal and stadium gal. They are non discriminatory. Cut with the their convenience drain. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe the DOD needs to buy those. Right. Someone's cornered the market on that. <laughs> apparently. Um, so we've pretty much covered <laughs> everything from climbing mountains to peeing in a bag. Um, it's a good day. I, for one, think that this has been uh, a really educational uh, podcast. I, I, uh, so I have a couple notes here that I want to ask about before we uh, yeah. wrap this up. Is um, So you're talking about when you were um, you know, traversing these mountains and supplies and things like that, and you want to pack, you know, uh, I would assume you want to pack kind of as light as possible to, to do this. Yep. And uh, But you're talking about bringing all that food and things like that. Is there um, something that you, like... Uh, what, what what is your mainstay for sustenance when you're climbing these mountains? What is what do you what do you go to? All the carbs, right? It really is. I mean, <clears throat> you're eating things that we don't eat normally. If you did normally in the ground, you probably weigh 300 pounds. Um, on the mountain, though, you're just looking for those those carbs down nearby. So you're eating Snickers bars. You're eating so much mac and cheese. Right. You know, you're eating uh, oatmeal. Things that have bars that have like 350 calories in them. You can't sounds eat. like the most delicious adventure no, ever. No, it's horrible. <laughs> it's only so good for so long. <laughs> you know, after a while, you're just, I'm so tired. You're eating ramen packets. Um, you can only carry so much protein. So right. the vegetables are gone after like day one. Right. They only stay for so long. So you right. have veggies maybe through day one, day two. And then after that, you have your protein's going to be packaged tuna. Right. Things like that that you could open up the seal, right? Because you're packing all that trash back out with you. Right. Um, granola. It's just it's really carbohydrate heavy, and I couldn't even eat all the food that I had. Right. I just couldn't stomach it. Right. I used to get I gave them like candy away to the guys, you know, because they were just starving, right. and I lost like ten pounds. I mean, your body eats itself right. uh, up there. So just, just wondering, like, because we just oh, well, I just got back from Wadapalooza, and you know, uh, I find especially in the CrossFit industry or, or that fitness industry, they're playing with a lot of those like fuel for fire and things yeah. like that. Like, is that something that's becoming more? No one's or, got time for that. Right. <laughs> they just go to the, the... It's easy. You know, right. what's easy, what's cheap, Right. honestly, um, when you have to buy so much of it. Right. And uh, when you're doing something like that, you're burning so many calories. It's not, you know, a wad. It's not three wads in a day. It's 12 hours of hiking, right. you know, and less amounts of oxygen to feed your brain. And at that point, you're just trying to... It's basically so, like, eat to perform and things like that. I know they have a lot of the recommendations are eating carbs around your wad. Right. Um, it's kind of the same thing here, but except you're working out all day long. Right. So 
any chance so you you're just, constantly eating carbs. you're constantly eating constantly eating anything you're hands on because if you let your body waste away over 21 days you're not gonna have the strength to get to the summit you're not gonna have the right. energy to get to the summit you know so you gotta just feed yourself you're always your ideal situation is not to be a caloric deficit fat yes please give me all the fat while i'm up there so they're cooking things in butter right you know oils to get that caloric intake up since you know nine grams uh compared to the four that you see in carbohydrates and protein Right. For every calorie, right. um, eating a lot of what was that? What was that peanut butter you? Uh, you <laughs> the coconut it? peanut butter. Oh the, my uh, god, it's delicious. What is it, the essentials, but it's just you know all the calories that you can get in your body. It really gives you the ability to eat whatever the hell you want, right? And have the worst diet. If there's pizza up there, if someone was brilliant enough to like open up a Pizza Hut on the Hilton and Glacier, right. that would be awesome. They would be <laughs> the richest people. Ever. I mean, people would just so, be sounds, all sounds over like that. Sounds like a discovery adventure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's just all the calories in the best way, the lightest way possible. Right. So the, the, combining your two worlds uh, of doing these, uh, these, these climbing adventures as well as seer school training, is there any direct correlation between <clears throat> um, what you would pack for just in case? Um, as a, 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 a and is is there a similarity between like what you would pack for just in case as well as like for these adventures? I mean, like yeah, everything's high cl- calorie, so your body functions. It's a machine, you know. It needs things to function. So again, same lightest thing. Uh, in the aircraft, you only have so much room for stuff. So you have a vest, and you can only carry about five pounds of personal gear. And so I know when we fly, we don't really have. There's things inside our seat pan if we have to eject that we can get like water things like that. But if you're going to bring something along for nutritionally, you want the best bang for your buck. So highly caloric, something that can put you through. You know, there's a reason why, was it unbroken? You know, they had chocolate, right, right. in the wraps. Yeah. Highly caloric, things like that. Um, a little shit ate it all. <laughs> he, he ate it all. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Uh, I, I actually was having this conversation the other night with somebody. They were like, oh, yeah, unbroken, such a great movie. I was like, oh, no. You have to read the book. The book is, the book way is better. so much better. Right. So much better. And it's and and that dude is is nothing but a hero for everything that he went through. I love that he's a hooligan too. That's the best part. <laughs> a little, little hooligan stealing pies and shit, you know. Right. It's phenomenal. Right. Um do you do you have any I mean, have you seen any like really high level advanced uh water filtration systems? I know they have one out now that's like a it's basically a straw. Yeah, so they have that. I've seen a lot of people use it. I haven't heard bad reviews. Uh, then, of course, you have the pens, the Stara pens. Yeah, uh, one of those. I, when I brought that to Kilimanjaro with me, they were the guides were like, what is that? And I didn't get it back, actually. <laughs> what, hey, describe it for us. <laughs> uh, Stara pens, so it works on the premise of UV rays. UV rays can actually uh, sterilize your water. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if you take a, a clear water bottle like this Poland spring bottle mm-hmm. and put water from a stream in it and you throw it out and let the sun do something with it for about four hours, the UV rays will actually get rid of a lot of bad things. Right. It won't filtrate it, no. but it'll sterilize it. So uh, the SteriPen works on the issue where they take, it's just like, looks like a pen and the end has a UV light on it and you dip it into your Nalgene bottle or whatever and you stir for about anywhere from 60 to 90 seconds, I believe. And it does that four hours and 90 seconds. Wow. Where it gets rid of 99, this is what they state in their marketing, 99.99% of all the bacteria is gone. Yeah. There's so many bacteria, so that 1.01% is actually still a lot of bacteria. But 
So it can be still, I mean... It's going to sterilize your water to make it safe. But like, it can still be like, uh, like brown water. Correct. So then you're going to have to filtrate it. Right. So there's other things. Get all the gunk out. So filtration, uh, I haven't seen. I'm still old school in the way of the old MSR pumps that you attach to your Nalgene, and it helps filtrate the water. But we teach, you know, normal methods. I mean, using... Uh, you know, rocks and sand in a sock, you know, things like that to yeah. filtrate the water and clean it the old school way. Because right. um, we have to work with what the students may have, right? So they're not going to have a cool, most of the times, unless you pack it yourself, you're not going to have a SteriPen. Right. You know, you're just going to have what's on your body to get water, purify the water and drink it. A lot of times iodine right. or um, yeah. chlorine, chlorine, chlorine pills or something. Yeah. Um, those two are pretty common. Same thing in adventure racing. Right. So adventure racing, it's the same thing. A lot of times they'll use like iodine or chlorine, but some people are allergic to iodine, so you have to watch out for that. But yeah, Josh is funny. Jo- like Josh gave me a, a like a survival pack or whatever, and it's full of iodine tablets. It's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And, and the um, I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, <laughs> going through Boy Scouts and going through high adventure uh, adventure camps. Like I had to buy this filter. It was just this monstrous thing. <laughs> and so it, it amazes me that we've gone from this. Giant thing that, that that weighed a lot to, I mean, literally a pen, a pen, yeah, a, pen. <laughs> a straw, right. and, and it's so cool. The, the, and the technology just always astounds me. Yeah, it's pretty it's, neat. It's so cool. Um, so I mean, you have. So in other words, if I were to build a bug out bag, I want to <laughs> build. I want to have some high calorie. Shit in it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> some, some, some very, very dense things. Backcountry, what are those backcountry meals, things like that? Yeah. They make pretty good, highly caloric things. There's one out of Maine, actually, Good to Go. I think Good to Go is the name of the company. Yeah, I think they're like right in Kittery. They're right in they? Kittery, and yeah. they are f- their food is delicious. I mean, they uh, showcased it for one of the adventure races I did, and it was delicious. Advent- I mean, so We need to get a hold of them. So when you talk about adventure racing, what the fuck? You adventure? What, what is this adventure racing thing you do? <laughs> <laughs> Just drop this bomb of adventure racing on us. Uh, sorry. Yeah, the adventure racing. <laughs> <laughs> there's. It's um. Think of like the eco challenge. Right? right. That's an adventure race. So they vary anywhere from short, like sprint adventure races, kind of like triathlon, right? Sprint adventure race for like four hours. And then it moves up six, 12, 24, multi-day, and then like a week or more right. uh, all through the line. And it's a international sport. Um, it tests multiple facets of life so and adventure, so cycling, mountain biking, uh, rock climbing, rappelling. There was a TV show for a little while about that. Yeah, there, there was. Yep. Mm-hmm. Running, uh, kayaking, pack rafting, canoeing, swimming. I mean, everything. Navigation is huge. So a lot of orienteering. Basically, someone says, "Here's point A to point B. Go." Right. You know, here's your map. Right. Here's your checkpoints along the way. You have to get there, and then here's what you have to do along those checkpoints. And then there might be some like surprise ones in there of you know team building exercises right. depending on what kind of challenge you're doing. Right. So it's really it's really cool. It's much better. I mean, I like triathlon. Triathlon's fun, but adventure racing is more for the you know outdoors person right. who you're basically in the woods you know all day. And it's kind of cool. Right. So uh, there's a lot of aspects to it. Swimming. You know uh, everything you probably whatever. think of. Um, yeah. Would you say that your military experience um, prepared you for that the most? 
It has. It, my outdoors, yeah, just being outside, really. Right. The things I've done in the military have been great and helped with, like, helped with navigation, right. things like that for sure. But as far as mountain biking, kayaking, all that stuff, that's more so things I you know personally enjoy doing. Right. So uh, you, do, yeah. do you train for that on your own free they time? They do. Like? The big, the really great teams, th- that's their life. That's their sport. Right. And they are badass. Right. I mean, we did one, I did one up in Maine that uh, they put on four-day adventure race. Right. And obviously whoever gets their quickest wins, right? right? These people are machines. They make tri- Ironman athletes look like babies. I right. mean, <laughs> they are cons- running the entire time. They're moving cons- all the time. There's no sleep. You don't right. sleep. They don't have time to sleep. They're eating a Snickers bar while pooping, like, because there's no time to do both. Right. Right. And they, they're the most amazing endurance athletes and the most skillful they are proficient in everything right and it is quite it's awesome to watch and as you're going and you're just you know like a you know beginner or a you know just amateur or whatever right you're just in awe they don't stop running they just don't stop moving right dude so we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before in some previous uh you know conversations um so with the adventure race in particular um do you think that the technical aspects of those skills are what get those people through, or do you think it's a a, a physical or or mental or what? What do you think the um, if you were to kind of number those things as most important to least important? Do you think like um, so if being physically fit, mentally prepared, or having a technical understanding of all those skills? Like where would you value those or rank those? It depend by the length of the race, right? <clears throat> and what type of race they're doing, what region. Uh, generally, physically fit obviously, is the first one. Right. Uh, if you can't do some, if you cannot make your body work for an extended period of time, then you're not going right. to get through. Because that's going to bring the mental aspect into it much quicker. Right. Because it'll be that much harder, that much quicker for you. Right. Uh, so, and then the longer endur- the longer races are definitely mental. Uh, people are, by then you're usually tired. Right. Probably someone's sick at that point. Right. You're having to pull your team along and just keep going when you're so tired. No sleep. Right. Um, and then technical aspects, you got to have an overall general idea of how to do everything. Right. They're very much renaissance people. You know, they, they know how to do everything. You don't necessarily need to be the best. Right. But usually they're the best in some discipline. Right. And then they get other people who are the best in another discipline. Right. And they put together a good team in right. that way. Uh, generally for longer races, from what I have read, uh, Male, so generally those teams are three males and one female. Uh, and it's harder for the women initially, I guess, because it's so intense right away. Right. But what happens, what's amazing, is interesting, is as the event continues on for a more of an endurance factor, you know, where the woman might have failed initially or had a hard time, by the time day three comes around, she's a boss. Right. Because she can keep going. Right. Like, and so I've read a couple of books. Rebecca... I can't think off the top of my head, but she was an adventure racer and she always felt herself limited in the beginning because the guys were just able to maintain such a higher intensity. Right. Uh, f- and then in the beginning, but by the third day, you know, they're kind of like slowing down and she's still going hard and right. now she can contribute. Right. Uh, along an adventure race, especially a four day one like that, everyone at some point is going to contribute something right. in some regard. And everyone at some point is going to be the one who sucks. Right. You know, and so right. um, probably a physical, which will bring in the mental and right. then the technical skills can be learned. Right. So, right. Yeah. Cool. Makes sense. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. It is awesome. I, I love it that you made, you said, tri- make, make triathletes look like bitches. It does, you know, <laughs> any, just, any just endurance like athlete, uh, adventure athlete uh, can do a triathlon. 
I mean, an Ironman is only 12, well, <laughs> 8 to 16 hours, whereas a four-day adventure race is four days. And, oh, by the way, you're sleeping about eight hours in four days. Right. So it makes it, I mean, you're basically doing four Ironmans. <laughs> <laughs> and you're training for one right now, right? I do. I have Ironman New Zealand in a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just keeps on going right? <laughs> yeah i'm actually training for this one too like i said i have a hard time with training for things yeah i like to just go off and do them uh without training and so i'm actually training for this one we have a 17 mile run here after this which should be amazing and uh <laughs> hopefully over this next month i can just close down all my training get it done so that i can arrive in new zealand just have a fun race you know? right I'm not trying to kill myself over this one yeah we might have to have you back and and <laughs> and, and talk about the uh, triathlon out in new zealand <laughs> it'll be interesting i'm sure <laughs> you're gonna be able to see sites out there like yeah we're staying for about uh 16 days we're gonna go down the south island and do some backpacking nice nice and then just drive around in an rv and see all the cool things i would nerd out so hard in new zealand and just oh, go great. to the lord of the Rings stuff yeah it's all over the place <laughs> yeah. yeah you go bungee jumping out there that, you know? that maori culture too is like really yeah. interesting very interesting yeah uh, that's where we'll be kind of right near rotorua oh, nice. on the north island right. is lake tapo is yeah. where the uh, iron man is so right. it's a really cool place yeah very strong culture right. very you know it's the indigenous people of new zealand right they're they're pretty yeah, awesome. I'll definitely have to come back and share that experience. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So you got anything else going on you want to talk about? Are you doing anything that you want to get I'm noticed or I'm always doing something, right. you know? I'm kind of put my... Uh, For the entire time I've known <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you're always doing something. <laughs> it depends on how well I do it. That's the thing. How many things can I juggle? Right. Uh, I'm kind of putting my Seven Summit thing on the back burner for now due to time and money. It's right. really expensive to climb all these mountains. Right. And yeah, I think you said you, you the next trip would be to Europe. What would that be? So in Europe, it's Mount Elbrus. And then, yeah, in South America, it's, uh, I always say this wrong, Akakongwa. And then uh, Antarctica is <laughs> Mount Vincent. And then uh, you have one, so you have one in Australia on the actual continent, which is actually a day hike. It's like Mount Kasuka. I can not say these correct. And then, But then the... Idea is there's actually a really tall, much taller one in the region. So some people say the one on Australia is the last, the seventh summit in that region. Some people say the one it's in New Guinea, I think, it, Punjajaya or something like that. Uh, very technical mountain. Right. They say that is it's much higher, right. but the, it's ridiculously expensive. Right. I mean, and then Everest, obviously, I'm not as concerned with that one anymore. Right. To be honest with you, it's become kind of just this huge commercial endeavor, right. um, and really dangerous because the people who are on it. And how many people are on it? You know, if you it's just you on that mountain, you're getting from point A to point B. You know, you're not going to have the clog. There's points. There's points where there's clogs um, in the trail, and you have to wait right. for right. how many people to get by. Right. So that's hours. That's time. Right. So, and that costs like sixty five thousand dollars to climb. What? Yeah. So I'm not made of money, and so I have to wait uh, for this to come. You know, later on in life, probably maybe next year, I'll do another one. But right. it's very expensive. So. Um, no, always doing something, still doing that skeleton thing. And yeah. then, yeah, and, uh, studying for med school, all that good stuff. Th this is, uh, <laughs> a bobsledding skeleton. Oh, I, I, you're coming back because we can't talk about all this stuff in, in one episode. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Skeletons where you go, it's, uh, like luge, but face first, right? Is yep. that what that is? Face first. And they have open tryouts for anyone. 
So don't look at me like that. Anyone? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think <laughs> hey, my two hundred thirty pound ass is, is getting on this fucking sled. We, we, we got to get out there and try these things. <laughs> so you get me one of those orange torpedoes, and we'll go down a, a hill <laughs> face first on that first, and we'll, we'll talk about that experience. <laughs> Eighty miles an hour face first on a bobsled track is probably not in my repertoire. Mm, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Thanks for doing this. And yeah, I, thank you. For coming on. Thanks for having me. Have you come back and elaborate on skeleton and your uh, New Zealand trip? <laughs> All right. That sounds good. Thank you for tuning in to Star Prime Society. See you Ow. next time. Later.